Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. What is up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Bootleg Football Podcast. I'm your host, Brett Coleman, here with my wonderful co-host, EJ Snyder. We are tackling, finally, the AFC South today. Uh, it, it's It's been a long time coming. It's going to be a little bit of a therapy session for one of us, not going to lie, but that's okay. I brought something with me to help ease the pain. I got a nice bottle of High West bourbon with me. It's a wonderful bourbon blend, one of my favorites. Uh, before we get into this absolute shit show, EJ, how you doing? What are you drinking? Uh, maybe slightly better than you because I don't have to talk about the team formerly known as the Texans. Uh, <laughs> I am fine. Uh, summer is here. We are deep in the middle of the divisional previews talking about uh, an interesting division as there isn't really, I would say, chalk in this division. No sort of uh, lots of things to talk about. No sort of absolute set. This is going to happen storylines but as you said it is summertime and if it's summertime you have to have appropriate drinks and we have a lot of new fans we have folks that joined us during the draft or over the course last course of the year bootleg and they've never seen a diver down so (laughs) consider this a public service announcement uh fellow football viewers take whatever your favorite clear mexican lager is uh mine happens to be pacifico and all you're going to do is open up that nice bottle. Bottles work best. You can do it in cans. I've done it in a pinch, but it's not great. And then we're going to have uh, an interesting pour here because it's on a soft surface. And you're going to add your friendly Bacardi Limon, which is lemon-flavored rum. And the secret is not to fill up the entire neck. I know it's tempting. But don't do it because you'll ruin it. If you had a bad day, you do do the whole thing. It's too sweet. Uh, We've had bootleg listeners come back on Twitter and say, I didn't listen. I was overzealous. (laughs) I did the bad (laughs) thing. And I'm like, yep, you overfilled it, didn't you? And they're like, yep. And it was too sweet. And they got super hammered, which, you know, that's a plus or minus depending. Um, But all you're going to do is fill it up so you've got a little bit of space left in the neck. Put your thumb over it. Try not to pour it on your lap in a podcast spin that puppy upside down and then you have to do a cute little pressure release move or else you're going to spray some all over your place but whatever by the way i just took a screenshot of you pouring hard liquor into a bottle of beer that i will keep on hand for the rest of my days and that's it once you've done that you will (laughs) never drink your plain clear mexican lager by itself ever again because this is better however public service announcement warning it's two drinks in one bottle. 
And they go down like Kool-Aid, especially when it's hot, and you can find yourself in rugged straits. I introduced Brett to these when I went down to his house, and he was like, mm. oh, yeah, these were good for the first three. And then um, film watching got a little bit sloppy after that. We, we tried to stand up. It didn't go too well. And I'll <laughs> We've tell you been I told sitting my, in the heat. <laughs> I told my buddy, my buddy about these, and yep. um, they were making them while they were out playing golf mm. in 92-degree mm. weather. No, mm. no, 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 no. Got That's, got a little messy. Got a little got messy. A, did they finish? <laughs> did they did they go more than nine holes? Because that would be rough. I'd be stunned if they finished. To be honest, I don't know. Ah, uh, that's but, a lot. Uh, and and we have the uh, the bear sleeve koozie to go with it. Uh, so clutch, we're just we're clutch. all about it. All about it. All right, EJ. What do you say we get into the fight in Easter Bees, the team formerly known as the Houston Texans? Um, you know, I I. I've almost become like emotionally disassociated with this franchise. I almost don't care anymore because there's really nothing left for me there. JJ's gone. Andre wants nothing to do with the team. Hopkins is in Arizona. Deshaun is whatever the fuck Deshaun is. I mean, I, a, he's never going to play for the team again, whether it's from his own choice or from, you know, uh, law enforcement's choice, I guess we'll find out. There's nothing left. There's nothing left. Like all all of the good feelings I had in the early 2010s where, you know, we had Gary Kubiak, who's just like a, a good guy to root for. Obviously, you know, it was time to move on at a, at a certain point, but no Texans fan rooted against Gary Kubiak. He's a great, great man. Um, you know, we had Wade Phillips at D.C., like there were there was so much to be happy about for the future of the franchise not that long ago and there is nothing left there is absolutely nothing left jack I say came in dissociation and, and... dissociation is probably healthier like at this point just oh yeah as, a, yeah as a pure health choice dissociation from whatever the texans have become and we're jokingly referring to them as the as the fight in easter bees but it is really the franchise formerly known as the texans as you said the alums want nothing to do with it uh, we'll talk about the roster. There has been heavy change over there, as is typical when you bring in a new general manager and a new coach. We talked about that. But this is different. We'll talk about the level of how different that is. So in terms of what it was to what it is, it's not the same. And if you started out like you did rooting for one thing and being excited by that and being invested in that, what's left doesn't really resemble that at all anymore. It's just it's. It just feels toxic. It feels like a toxic team-to-fan relationship, you know, because as a member of the fan base, it's like, don't don't pee on my face and tell me it's raining. Like, I know what's happening here. I the, the, they, they think the fan base was a lot stupider than we were when we could see, like, we told them in real time, hey, trading DeAndre Hopkins for a second-round pick and David Johnson's probably pretty fucking stupid. And they're like, nah, we'll be fine, we'll be fine, we'll be fine. It's like, oh, you know, not firing Bill O'Brien after he lost a 24-point lead to Kansas City's pretty fucking stupid. You should hire the offensive coordinator for the other team that just beat them because he's a pretty good coach. They didn't. Two years in a row, they didn't. They didn't, wouldn't even give him an interview at first until Deshaun forced their hand. Pretty fucking stupid. Like, they make so many mistakes over and over and over again that the fan base is actively telling them our mistakes and they think they're the smartest dudes in the room. 
and well, really, it's Jack Easterby thinks he's the smartest dude in the room, and he yep. he has his fangs in the leadership. Well, I use leadership that term loosely. He has his fangs in the leadership ownership. of that organization. Ownership, ownership. really, and you know he's he's dug in like a tick man and it's so many of the mistakes that this organization has made can be traced back to Jack Easterby and he hasn't even been there that long we're talking only a few year period where he came in and then slowly not even slowly quickly ascended to basically being the guy in charge of the team players don't like him a lot of the staff that works in that building don't like him. I know that for a fact. Media doesn't like him. But the one guy that matters, which is, you know, uh, the McNair family, they like him. And so as long as Jack Easterby is there, there is no hope for that franchise. Because he runs the team, and he doesn't know how to run a football team. So I'm not in- investing any emotional energy in the Texans anymore at all. And thank God that I was already, you know, uh, uh, the Bears fan, the Bears were my NFC team because I have, I have a weird habit of just rooting for teams in places that my dad lived when I was growing up and he lived in Houston, he lived in Chicago. So I had my AFC team was the Texans and my NFC team was the Bears. Uh, Texans were my main team, but the Bears were, were just waiting with arms wide open as soon as they took Justin Fields. And it's like, all right, I'm here. Let's, let's go. I'm, I'm ready to embrace uh, you know, Bears fandom because I I feel now more emotional connection to the Bears with all of the players they have that I love than I have emotional con- connection to the Texans. I love Akeem Hicks. I love Khalil Mack. I love Allen Robinson. I love Tariq and Monty and, and all these guys. I have so much more of, a, of an emotional fans connection to the success of the players on the Chicago Bears roster than I do to the Houston Texans because there's nobody left. And I never thought I would say that four years ago. But here we are. I'm stunned. I'm stunned that this is where we're at. Yeah, it's been rapid, uh, unexpected. Uh, I would say overwhelmingly negative. Uh, it's hard to point to decisions that Jack Easterby made or the results of those decisions that worked out worked out for the Texans like hey <laughs> did any of them <laughs> yeah that's kind of the thing and that's a little stunning just as it is right with probability with a coin flip you're figuring well there's there's likelihood that I could get good or bad pretty much all the way along almost every step hasn't been a thing that's been better for the team in fact it's been the other thing and you stack enough of those on top of each other and Easterby has stacked a lot of them in again, a very short period of time, three ish years and turned what was once an aspiring franchise with some hope. Look, you've got your quarterback in place. There's some things you could do to surround him to make another run. You know, he's young. You got plenty of years left to do that. Like that's a, that's a hopeful position for a fan base to be in. And we're now at a completely opposite point. I don't know anybody that was a Texans fan that was super excited that's like, well, you know, I'm going to give this Easterby guy a chance to wait. Maybe two years <laughs> from now, this rebuild will come together and and they'll be whooping people. And look, it's the NFL. Stranger things have happened. 
do I think that's in any way likely? And the answer is, I really don't. I really think Houston is bouncing off the bottom of the league right now, and with good reason. Uh, I mean, they're they're the early favorite to be the first overall pick, and for good reason. Why don't, why don't we start off going through our coaching staff review? Uh, these are the souls unfortunate enough to be associated with this team at the moment. We'll see how long that lasts. Uh, Nick Casario brought in, finally, I guess, you know, this is take two, bringing in Nick Casario to be the general manager. He's in his first year there. Uh, David Culley seemed to be the only uh, assistant coach around the league willing to take the job. More power to him. I mean, it's it's a big payday for him, and, you know, he's in his mid-60s, so fully guaranteed contracts for a head coach. He can just take this big payday and then kind of walk off into the sunset. Great for him to secure the bag. And also, he seems like a good dude. I have nothing against David Culley, but let, let's be honest. There was a lot other better candidates for the job. Just none of them wanted it. Uh, Jack Easterby is going to be there forever. And then uh, we have Lovey Smith, who's uh, assistant head coach and defensive coordinator in his first year, and then Tim Kelly, uh, sticking with the team's offensive coordinator. You know, I... It's kind of like the, the, the island of misfit toys here. <laughs> I don't really see how any of these dudes fit together. I, I mean, I guess Nick Casario could survive this because, you know, he signed, like, I think it was a six-year deal, if I remember correctly. So, like, he's in it for the long haul, and they sacrificed basically everything to get him because all of this stuff started with you know, Easterby trying to recruit Casario and then the tampering charges were filed and everything like that. And it led to all this other stuff that happened. Like they basically were holding out for Casario for two or three years. And even if stuff goes South and this team wins like 10% of their games over the next couple of years, he's not going to get fired because they, they gave up so much equity to, to bring him in. So he's probably the only one here that's safe no matter what, other than Jack. David Culley, again, I think he's a placeholder, lovey placeholder. And then Tim Kelly, this is an audition for him to go somewhere else. Because I think Tim Kelly is a legitimately good coach. But again, I don't think he's going to stick here long term, either of his own volition or just from the natural turnover that I expect for this team in a couple years after they go through this dumpster fire of the next couple period or next couple seasons. Um, I don't know what to make of this staff, man. I, how do you get excited about this? I, I don't know how you get excited about this. I don't know what you do. And Cully was the last man standing. It was a bit like musical chairs and everybody else that was a head coaching candidate uh, that came through the Texans uh, got a chair <laughs> with their yeah. team. Most of them stayed with their team or went to other teams. And Cully was like, hey. And they were like, would you do it? And he was like, yeah. And for the reasons you said, uh, was he most qualified? No. Uh, was he most well-known? Absolutely not. Does he seem like a decent guy? He actually does, right? I hope for him that this works out in some way or another. But to be honest, he was literally the last guy that would take the job or the first guy that would not <laughs> leave the Texans in the lurch. Like, this is not a positive. This is just a, you know, eliminate everybody else. And there's one guy left and, and that guy agreed to come in. So... When you've got that as your head coach, it's difficult. He can lean on Lovey, a lot of experience there. But look, Lovey hasn't inspired a lot as a head coach. He's been the head coach at Illinois. 
and he's underachieved there. He had a, a lot of athletes, and Illinois never seemed like they were in the Big Ten race. Ask any Illinois fan if they were like really upset that Lovey left. The answer is no. He's a good coach. He relates to young men really well in terms of wanting to develop them and and being a solid figure at at the head of your program. But in terms of a football coach, like the I think the common perception around the NFL is that the NFL has passed Lovey Smith by. And if he's going to make a mark this year, he's going to have to counter that impression. He's going to have to see where trends are going. And by all the comments he's made so far, that doesn't sound like the way he's leaning. Um, Lovey does not yeah. look like he's diving back in to try and be cutting edge or, or even keep up. He's saying, no, I, th- I think what we've got works and, and we just have to run it well. And that to me is like, oh, we've all, we're doing it this way because we've always done it this way, which is one of the most dangerous statements on earth. Uh, so not a lot of hope there. And Tim Kelly, I agree with you. I was a bit surprised he stayed, but it has to be, in my mind, again, an audition for something greater down the road, most likely somewhere else. And, you know, I don't, was he interviewed for the head coaching spot? I don't believe he was. I don't think he was. So that you already kind of know what your current employer thinks of you in terms of the head spot. So it's probably not going to happen here. He really is looking to make his mark. And what's the most important factor influencing whether or not an offensive coordinator has success in the NFL? Yeah. Quarterback. You got to have quarterback, (laughs) right? And he doesn't really know who his quarterback's going to be. They will talk about the the guy they drafted, the guy they brought in in free agency, neither one is kind of the guy you're automatically leaning on and saying, oh no, this guy's our day one absolute starter and he's going to be there for for 16 games. So Tim Kelly's going to be working with a rotating cast at the game's most important position and it's going to be difficult for him to achieve success, especially with all the the tumult and flux that we're going to talk about on the rest of the team, right? Football's still a team sport. I know we talk about the quarterback a lot and rightfully so. But both halves or all three phases have to support each other. And looking at this, I wouldn't bet folding money that the offense is really going to prop up the defense or vice versa, given the questions on both sides of the ball and all the change. So it's not a staff. It's not a setup. It's not a team as a unit overall that says that's going to be a tough out. When you look at what they have on paper and paper is different than what shows up on grass. But if you look at what they have on paper, you go, this is the easy week on our schedule. Uh, going back to the lovey thing about the league passing him by, you made a really good point. Now, there has been d- some discussion in Texan circles, uh, which I still look at regularly because that's all my friends and we talk about Texans football. Um, but they're like, okay, well, you look at kind of the meta of defense and everything's kind of working towards playing two high structures. You look at what Vic does, Staley decides he's going to do in Chicago. You're playing two high structures. You're playing quarters. You're playing, um, you know, you're basically keeping stuff in front of you and you have to have safeties that can match up in man coverage and also be able to play the run from depth. Like, and so it's like, okay, well, if Lovey Smith, one of the fathers of, Tampa too likes playing in two high structures like theoretically should be fine right well they don't play it the same way that Staley and Vic does they're not doing a whole lot of match quarters uh they're not doing a lot of tight front 
you know, they're pretty much like we are playing four, three over and four, three under. And that's about it. You're not going to see tight. You're not going to see double twos. And the thing is, if you're playing a too high structure and teams are going to run the ball at you, you need to do something other than just playing an over front or an under front to give yourself an advantage in fitting the run or else teams are going to know that, Hey, they're just basically shooting to get a run through with the will. Let's run right at them, you know? And that's, it's one thing, you know, if you're in Tampa and you have a couple hall of fame linebackers or you're in Chicago and have a couple hall of fame linebackers, like if you don't have amazing, incredible linebackers, you're not going to be able to stop the run consistently from too high. The Texans don't have amazing, incredible linebackers on the inside. Like, I don't know. I feel like in order to be able to stop the run from a too high shell, you need to have a player that can, for lack of a better term, steal you a gap. You know, when they were doing it with LA last year, they had Aaron Donald, who basically counts for a gap and a half every single play. You know, I talked about Derek Brooks, Urlacher, where it's like, hey, if, if you're even up in the numbers, these guys can beat blocks and make a play and give you an advantage even when you don't have an advantage. Texas don't have that kind of guy. Like, they have a couple guys that maybe have a chance eventually. Um, but, I mean, God, like Zach Cunningham is your best linebacker and you're putting in with Grugier Hill. Neither one of them are Derek Brooks. Sorry. Like, I like Zach Cunningham, but he's not Derek Brooks. I don't know. I feel like, yes, Lovey Smith does play some stuff that theoretically would match up with the modern defensive meta, but they do it so differently than the coaches that make that stuff work that I'm not just going to blindly trust that too high equals good because not everybody runs too high the same way. No, devil's in the details on this one. You're absolutely right that you can say theoretically they come from the same place. It ain't the same. And one thing about Lovey that even he experienced in the end of his Chicago tenure before he you know took a break and ended up back at Illinois was predictability, right? He wasn't a guy that was going to break from the norm very much. You knew what you were getting from the Bears. You knew what they were going to run. And... If you're going to be predictable, you better have some athletes, like a bunch, a bunch of good ones. Those Chicago defenses had a lot of very good athletes in key positions, guys that were pro bowlers, guys that were Hall of Famers. And the Texans defense, when you look end to end, is not full of those guys, right? So typically, if you have that kind of roster, you're going to have to scheme them up a little bit, right? You're going to have to use motion disguise rotation to put guys in position to make better plays because they're not just amazing athletes who are going to take up an extra half a gap that doesn't match up so the the sort of coaching philosophy and the predictability and the roster don't mesh together like this to give you an overall product and if i was a texans fan i'd be a little bit nervous about the defense. well i'd be a lot nervous about the defense let me be honest and some teams are like, okay, well, the Seahawks got away with playing base against 11 personnel. It's like, well, yeah, they had KJ Wright and Bobby Wagner. Like, it's not a fair comparison. Like, uh, when you have talent that's going to be in your ring of honor someday, you can get away with some shit. Like, I don't know. Mm-hmm. I think people just need context for this. It's it's not all the same. But nope. uh, anyway, moving on to their draft. Uh, very few picks. Might have been the fewest in the league. 
because they only had five. Oh, no, Seahawks had three, so that was the fewest. But Correct. one of the fewest in the league. Uh, Davis Mills was their first pick in the third round. One pick after the Vikings took Kellen Mond, and there's been some stories out there that the Texans were locked in on taking Kellen Mond, and the Vikings snaked him, and they were pissed and panicked and took Davis Mills because they didn't think that they were going to have Deshaun Watson. That pick, by the way, alone tells you that they do not expect to have Deshaun Watson back because they wouldn't have yeah. taken Davis Mills as they thought they would. Um, especially not if they were targeting Mon. As, yes, especially not if they were targeting Mon. Deshaun Watson's not playing for the Texans this season. 90% chance. Not a 100% chance, but a 90% chance he's not playing for the season. And that pick proves it. Plus, they brought in you know, Terod Taylor, where it's like, okay, <laughs> he's really not playing for the Texans then. Uh, later in that round, Nico Collins, this was the pick I probably liked the most. Um, really talented, go up and get it, jump ball receiver. He kind of slimmed down. Uh, we saw that at the Senior Bowl. He, I think he lost 15 pounds, if I remember correctly. Went from about 225 to 210 uh, again, if memory serves. And, I mean, he looked really good running routes out there. It looked like he had a lot more vertical burst in addition to still being a really good jump ball guy. Great hands, deceptive after the catch. Um, I, I, I'm a fan of Nico Collins' game. He was one of my favorite kind of mid-tier receivers. So I felt like that was a pretty good pick for them. Brevin Jordan went in the fifth round. A lot of people thought that was maybe late for him. I thought that was about right. Um he was kind of billed as like this year's athletic undersized tight end, except he wasn't that athletic. So that pretty much just left him with being undersized. So for me, I think he's an H back, maybe best case scenario. He becomes like Walmart Delaney Walker. But again, that is best case scenario getting him in the fifth round. And again, he plays hard. I think he's going to be a really good contributor on special teams, but I don't necessarily see him being like a game changing, uh, option on offense regardless of what his highlights at Miami say the the athleticism is not is not comparable to say a Delaney Walker uh Garrett Wallow again uh, undersized six foot 215 kind of remind me of uh, Grant Stewart from Houston who we talked about last week where it's like really small not super fast but great instincts so that to me screams special teams because if you're going to be that small you need to be you need to have some exceptional physical ability, and he does not. Instincts can only get you so far. Eventually, you got to stack and shed on Quentin Nelson. I don't ever see him doing that, so I think he's a special teamer. And then Roy Lopez, I actually like this pick as well in the sixth round. Your best hope is that he becomes Timmy Jernigan. Like, that's probably his absolute max ceiling is Timmy Jernigan. Not saying he'll get there, but I think he does have potential. He's kind of like that sawed-off... Uh, you know, 315 pound body that it just, he's kind of hard to dig out because he's short and round and strong. Um, I think he's got potential to, to make this team be a contributor. I actually kind of like the defensive line rotation they've built over the last couple of years with Omenahu and Blacklock. They brought in Malik Collins, who we'll talk about in a minute. And then Roy Lopez, I think has a legit shot to make the team uh, overall, like Considering it was five picks, okay, you're picking up a couple guys for special teams. You're picking up a developmental defensive tackle. You got a really good receiver in Nico Collins. The Davis Mills pick, I don't like it, but their back was against the wall, so I can understand why they did it. I wouldn't have done it because I just don't think he's a very good prospect, but I understand why. And if he's a backup to Taylor and he's just sitting on the bench and 
giving you another guy in the room. Again, they, they had no though no real choices here because of the Deshaun situation. So I'm not going to knock them too hard for it. But in a vacuum, I did not think that he was a good enough player to be taken in the first three picks of the third round. I don't know. That's where I stand on their draft. What say you? Yeah, I I didn't dislike really any of their selections. I'm with you on Mills. I can completely understand the reasoning. I can say why they did it, and I can also say I wouldn't have done that. <laughs> Right. I would <laughs> I would have run with Tyrod or I would have done something else like Davis Mills. We talked a lot about it. We talked about Davis Mills with Mark Schofield when he was on the pod. Um, definitely a divisive prospect. And, you know, go back and watch the UCLA game. He, he played great and he played terrible in the very same game. You see the very best of Davis Mills and you see the oh, geez, those are the things he's going to have to clean up if he's going to be a productive quarterback. I fell on the side of thinking Davis Mills was a little bit overrated in the draft. Therefore, but this was uh, a quarterback heavy draft at the top. And after that, the drop off was pretty severe. Like I liked mom. Mon was gone. After that, it's kind of a don't pick one till later category for me. Yeah. They pick him with their very first pick. Again, they only had five picks. It was their top pick. It's still in the third round. Let's keep it in perspective. Didn't it wasn't didn't start off the draft with a bang for me. Let's put it that way. Nico Collins, we both like. I think Nico Collins uh, is comparable in some ways to T. Higgins. I think T. Higgins is a little bit better than him, but a very similar game. He's going to go down the sideline. He can win those routes. He's athletic. He's tall. He gets up. He high points the ball. He's pretty physical. We saw him a little bit quicker at the Senior Bowl. I like that. I think he has room to develop, and I don't think there's a ton of threats on this receiving core that, you know, a year and half, two years from now, are kind of going to get in Nico Collins' way if he continues to develop. I think he can be a, a pretty good number two wide receiver in the NFL. Um, so I like that. Brevin Jordan, fifth round, I would have said somewhere between the fourth and the fifth again because it was a weak tight end class overall. Brevin Jordan had some athleticism, but he was not where he was billed preseason. He got built up as that great, flashy, sort of number two move tight end who's going to be dynamic and get you a bunch of yards and when you looked at his tape he was some of that he was not all that i think he's got a decent chance to develop into a very solid number two tight end uh but he is not going to blow you away on the athletic scale and he's he's not going to be that great yak guy down the field either he's not super flexible um he is athletic he is fast he does have burst he can jump but it didn't he didn't even put it all together at Miami and the level of competition's going up. So I think he, I think the H back designation is a decent one for him. Uh, I didn't dislike the pick again. It's in the fifth round, talented player still on the board. Go ahead, go get him. Garrett Walla was not my favorite guy in this draft. I thought he played really hard. He is undersized and he plays that way. Um, he's not <laughs> one of those super small players that plays way bigger than his size. And you look up his size at 215 or 220, and you're like, man, I thought he was 240, man. He was, he was, you know, whacking those running, but no, mm -mm. he plays small. Yeah. He runs around. He is active. I like Stewart better because Stewart just made more plays. You know, is that because, and, and TCU's defense, when you're watching it, um, I, I remember actually reaching out to you when I was watching a bunch of guys on TV, TCU's defense, and we got in a chat, and I was like, man, TCU's defense is loaded with athletes. Like, they've got guys who not only came out this year, I mean, both safeties ended up in the league. The, the 2019 defense, when you look back on it, like 80% of those dudes are going to be in the NFL. Yeah. yeah, and this defense, even though they got guys drafted this year, like Wallow, and there's both safety, well, one of their safeties, I think both safeties should have been drafted, but that's another story. 
you're looking at the guys on the line and going, man, they just graduated a guy last year. It was a high draft pick. And they've got guys who are better than that. Like, who's this yeah. guy? I'm looking up underclassmen on their roster going, who's this guy? He's making plays all over the place. And, you know, the corners were good. Safeties were good. And, you know, Wallow was, I think, probably one of the worst athletes on the field. And he still got drafted. That TCU defense is loaded, but I just didn't think Wallow had a lot of impact. A lot of people said, oh, late round jam as a, as a smaller linebacker, you're going to love him, blah, blah, blah. Didn't love him. So, again, I think special teams is the role for him. Um, and Lopez, I don't think I ever would have compared him to Timmy Jernigan. Maybe ever. Uh, I don't dislike him, but I think <laughs> sixth round was correct. Um, he can be a nice rotational piece. He doesn't have to come in and be a a key cornerstone piece for them on the defensive line because they have collected a lot of assets over the last couple of years and they do have a decent rotation there so could he play that sort of rotational role grow into something more make the team i think he could and as a six-round pick that's great so overall you know pretty good draft it's when again you put some nuance and some context to it and you put this draft in the context of where the organization is and what they really needed given their current sort of gaps and you go is it is it enough (laughs) it's not enough that's the thing it's not they also didn't they also didn't have any assets because they're in a rough spot (laughs) they don't don't have any assets yeah Yeah. because they traded uh how they how did they lose so it was the tonsil pick that cost them the first round pick and i think the second round pick was also the tonsil pick or the tonsil trade or was that the brandon Uh, cooks trade uh, was, I don't know where their second round pick. It was. I can't remember. Either way, they just they didn't they yeah. didn't have high value assets in the one year where they really needed high value assets. Or they could have taken. There's an alternate strategy here, which again, Casario, I don't think would be a proponent of. And and based on if he's making if he's calling the shots, we know they're not a proponent of it because they didn't do it. They could have said, "We're going to trade back with our first three picks." Right, We're just going to get as many picks as we can and pick guys across the board to try and fill the roster because we are not one player away. We are not two players away. We're probably not even five or eight players away. We we need a lot of everything everywhere, and we're just going to we're gonna take multiple swings at the apple, kind of like Carolina did. They just hung up the for yeah. sale sign and said, every time we come up with a pick, we're going to see if trading back gives us better value. And they did like five times throughout the draft, and they ended up with a lot more swings. They kind of stuck and stayed. They, you know, they had three trades, but not again. They didn't multiply their picks from five to ten or five to twelve. Again, they would have been lower round picks. But if your scouting staff is solidified and into it and aligned, we talk about that all the time. You could have gotten value again across and built the base of this roster for two or three years because you're not competing this year. Like everybody well, you look at some of the you, you look at some of the UDFA's that we've gone over not for this team and other teams. And it's like, there were good players. There are always players down the board and they could have done that, but they didn't. And so it's like, you get back to the question, is it enough? And the answer is no, you're not contending this year. And this, this draft doesn't get you a whole lot closer to winning a couple of extra games. Like I don't look at anybody on that list and go, Oh, that guy's gonna, gonna help them swing a game or two this year. Which I mean, it's hard to do again from, from a, Totally agree. Pick. If they got Kellen Mond, like maybe, maybe, but th- but that's a again yeah, rookie quarterback. Maybe it, so it's a maybe at best. 
Yeah. Um, and speaking of UDFAs, we'll go over them. Uh, they didn't have a, a huge UDFA class from what I could find from the signings. Um, you know, we basically have four listed here that are notable. Uh, Carson Green is probably the one that stands out the most to me. Big, like 6'6", 320-pound tackle, 34-and-a-half-inch arms, if I remember correctly, just really, really strong. Wasn't as good as his teammate that got drafted by the Steelers, whose name is escaping me right now. Um, but I do remember watching Green, and I was like, you know, you put him in a system where he doesn't have to to try to move out in space, and his one job is to just get his hands on somebody and, and just move them off the ball, and I think that can work. So, again, we're talking about, you know, a power-type scheme, you're running inside zone, something where he doesn't have to either arc release to the second level, he doesn't have to try to reach block a, a, a five technique, something where he doesn't have to move laterally that much and he can just focus on getting his hands on dudes, down block, crush the entire side of a defensive line. I think he can have success there. Pass protection, it's an issue. Uh, guys his size that don't have the nimble feet to go with it but also don't entirely know how to use their length yet, can really struggle. We've seen a lot of tackles that are 6'6", 320 with really long arms fail in the league because even though they have those dimensions, they don't have good feet and they don't have good hand placement. He's got work to do there. That's why he went undrafted. But I think he does have tools, and I think he has a shot to make the roster. Uh, I don't know about the rest of these guys in terms of being able to make the team, but Carson Green's the one for me that kind of makes sense there. Yeah, I like the center that played with Carson Green, Ryan McCollum. Uh, again, as a guy, as a developmental guy, is he going to come in and start at center right away? I, I would hope not, no matter who your team is. Uh, you know, is he a guy that with a, a year or two in the league could be a very capable backup swing interior lineman? I think he can. He's smart. He's tough. Um, uh, he has his limitations, but that line was pretty effective, uh, at Texas A&M. So I like McCollum, don't love him, but as a UDFA, absolutely feel great taking a swing on him. And Marlon Williams is a really interesting player. This is a guy that is a tank as a wide receiver. He is <laughs> short and he loves to run dudes over. He plays like a running back. First thing I saw on his tape was runs a lot of ran a lot of crossing routes at Central Florida. Um, very solid catching the ball. Again, not spectacular, not super athletic in terms of like really rangy. Uh, and not really crazy nimble, but compact and tough, like tough, 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 just runs like a tank, bounces off guys, runs over guys. I'm, I'm looking at his dimensions right now. He's 5'11", 210. Yep. Which and is runs, runs through guys to the sideline, yeah. like play. And again, we talked about small and plays bigger. I would have said he was 5'10", 220, like he is stout and he uses it. He is a battering man. He's fun to watch. You don't see very many wide receivers that kind of crave contact and, and initiate contact like that. Marlon Williams, I'd be fascinated. I didn't dig into his background, but I'd wonder if he doesn't have some running back in, in you know, junior football or, or maybe high school or something because he plays like a running back with a ball in his hands. And 210 is bigger than a lot of 5'11 running backs. You know, a lot of running backs that are in the the five ten five eleven range. You'll see they're two oh five something like that. Um, every once in a while, there'll be a Doug Martin that's like five ten two twenty five. But at least in the modern era, right now, a lot of the smaller running backs are slimmer so that they can get work. 
um, as either like scat backs, you know, hybrid players, that kind of stuff. Five eleven, two ten, solid, solid, solid running back measurements. But again, as you said, he plays receiver, so that's a and he that's plays like that. He is a bowling ball on film. Yeah. He is a battering ram, a bowling ball, whatever you want to call it. He will find a guy on the sidelines, give him a forearm shiver, and try and get upfield. He's not one of those guys that just sort of tiptoes out of bounds. Uh, so interesting player. Is he going to crack their receiving roster? I don't know, but he was a fun player to scout, and it'll be interesting to see. And he was really reliable, right? He was in the right place, caught the ball all the time. Um, but, man, just a physical, physical dude. Now, looking at their free agents, they have 33 of them. It's the largest free agent class I think I've ever seen. Uh, 26 of them, <laughs> to let you know the state of the franchise right now. Uh, they are a truck stop, a metaphorical truck stop in the NFL right now. Dudes are like, just give me a year, and then I'll get the fuck out the next year. Uh, they, just dudes who just need a job. 26 of these free agents they signed are one-year deals, which is insane. Like, they... They, they really, and again, I'm looking over the free agent list right now. I don't see any deals over two years. Nobody's committing to this team long-term. No. Nobody. It took and two I, pages when I put this list together. Every Everybody <laughs> else, like, I could fit the clip on, like, half a page or some, some teams, like, a quarter of a page. This is literally the better part, the majority of two pages. And so I counted them up. I was like, man, this seems really long. 33. I mean, with typical classes we've been looking at through all these divisional previews, 15, 18, some some teams like 21, some teams only five or seven, right? 33 is a huge number. And then as I was looking through, I was like looking for, typically we look for the big deal, where'd they invest, right? It's a low money year. Where Who'd they throw money at to get in the building? And I was like, one, 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 <laughs> one, one, gee, holy crap. Like, and again, you know, four fifths of these guys, 26 of 33, one year deals. Like, even for a team that turned over a GM and a coach, that's a lot. I, I think the, the best players they signed, I just kind of take again, it's hard to narrow it down because there's so damn many. I mean, Desmond King, I think, is a really good nickel, very good against the run, really good zone defender. I was actually surprised that he didn't get a deal anywhere else i'm not really sure maybe houston was the only one that was willing to offer him a one-year deal and he wanted to i guess do a prove it year in houston then try to get a a multi-year deal next year when he's 28 and have that be like his last big deal of his career maybe that's what he was thinking i'm surprised his agent let him do it but whatever he's a really good player so it's good for the texans um malik collins uh, I, I like malik collins a lot i think he was also a one-year deal if i remember correctly I'm, man, there's so many guys. Uh, Mark Ingram came over a one-year deal. <laughs> Philip Lindsay yeah. came over on a one-year deal. Mark Ingram, he's 32, so I don't expect a whole lot from him. But he's one of my favorite running backs from the last 10 years just because he always plays his ass off. He brings it in protection. He's a good locker room leader. Um, Mark Ingram, I think, is good for this franchise, in particular some some young guys that can look up to him. And then Philip Lindsay is just dynamic. Uh, he's another guy that I, I thought would get more than a one-year deal somewhere, but I guess he just wanted to to, to go by the truck stop and, and do a prove-it and then maybe sign somewhere else next year. Uh, other than that, it's just a lot of names. Nothing that really sticks out to me. Christian Kirksey's 
not a super versatile linebacker. He's more of a run plugger, but they already have that, and his name is Zach Cunningham. I don't know. There, there's not a, there's not really anything to be excited about here. Not that I expected there to be, but none of these guys really move the needle to me in terms of like they're going to win two more games because they signed this guy. No, the impact pieces aren't there, but I don't mind the base they built. Just what I talked about for the draft, they kind of did through free agency, right? I think Terrence Mitchell, again, not a guy that is super exciting. Can you count on him to eat some downs at cornerback? Yeah, you can. Desmond King, better than that. A very good nickel. Um, Vincent Taylor, you talked about, or you talked about Malik Collins. Vincent Taylor, similar player, uh, can come in and you know eat downs in the middle of that defensive line for them. Uh, Terrence Brooks, a versatile kind of play close to the line safety that's got some coverage ability. Uh, that's going to be important in this division. Um, not wild about the Christian Kirksey's of the world, but Kevin Pierre-Lewis, KPL, a guy that had a great year for the Bears, very solid year for Washington. was a bit surprised that he didn't get a deal. He's not the youngest uh, linebacker at 30, but he's played quietly very well for the last two years in the league. He's a guy that might start for them. Um, Derek Rivers was a guy I was fascinated with in the draft, never really did anything, um, hasn't done anything. He's only 27 years old though. Like maybe you get a little bit of pass rush out of a guy like Derek Rivers, who's, they signed him for a one year, uh, $1,100,000 contract, right? You pay him 1.1 million for one year. And you know, if he comes in and gets five or six rotational sacks for you, that's a win. So, uh, and Tyrod Taylor is a guy that they can start week one. They know pretty much what they're going to get. Um, I'm a Tyrod fan. I don't want to call myself a Tyrod apologist. Uh, definitely got a bum deal with the Chargers, getting his lung punctured. Um, you know, Herbert ascended, and that was the end of that. He was moving on. You know, could he have a, a decent start for the Texans? I think he could. It's Again, he doesn't get to say anything about Deshaun. That's not his situation. Uh, the rest of the team around him. You know, here's a chance to start. Those are rare in the NFL. There's not too many places where they're going to come in. They're just going to hand you the starting gig. So, yeah, it's a bottom of the roster or bottom of the league roster in terms of the franchise right now. But he gets a chance to start. And he's a solid option. Is he a great option? Is he going to lead them to a couple more wins all by himself? No, but surround him with talent. And he is a competent NFL quarterback. So this is kind of, they built the base through free agency. And other than that, you're right. It's just a lot of other names because I only named like six or seven and there's 33 of them. Yeah, Six or seven is a complete free agent class for some teams. And that's a fraction of it for the, for the Houston Texans. Uh, Let's move on to Jacksonville who don't look now has built a very, very, very good roster. Um, it was kind of fascinating to me to see the rise, or the fall, the rise, and then the fall again of the Jaguars kind of around that magical 2017 year. I think it was 2017 where they went to the AFC Championship game and they had this great defense and they had a bruising rookie running back in, in Leonard Fournette and Blake Bortles was playing okay. Um, that was the year that they didn't even have Allen Robinson. He tore his, his ACL in like the second possession of week one, ironically, against Houston. Um and that was the year that I think everybody's like, okay, the Jags are back. Like it's going to be a, a, a long-term successful franchise. And then all of a sudden it, it completely blew up because um, the Coughlin way of doing things didn't sit right with the players. And all of a sudden their most talented players didn't want to be there anymore. So they had to kind of blow up the roster and, and build it all again. And I think they actually did a pretty good job of doing that in only a couple years. Cause when you, when you look at this roster, 
they have a lot of really, really good players. Um, why don't we go over their their leadership structure before we get into who they brought in here in the draft and free agency? You got Trent Balky, year one at general manager, uh, last seen in a general manager role with the 49ers. And I think it was at five or six years ago when, when he parted ways with them, if I remember correctly, it was around the time of, uh, you know, the, the power struggle with Jim Harbaugh It's like 2014, 2015, somewhere around there. Um, but he, he contributed to building a very talented team there as well. Uh, Urban Meyer coming out of, I guess you can call it retirement <laughs> to, to be the new head coach. Although I don't think anybody ever really believed that Urban Meyer was never going to coach again. Everybody kind of knew that he was in the media for a couple of years and he was waiting for another job opportunity. All of a sudden Jacksonville comes calling. They have the first overall pick. There happens to be a guy named Trevor Lawrence who's going to be the first overall pick. He's like, well, if there was ever a job to walk into that, that was going to be successful, it's that one. So Urban came out of media retirement to be the head coach. Uh, Charlie Strong, and I love Charlie Strong. He's their assistant head coach and linebackers coach, and he's a very, very, very good linebackers coach. Um, you know, he he kind of cut his teeth in the coaching profession doing defensive line and, and particularly linebackers. Last year, heavily contributed to um, uh, Alabama as an analyst, which really basically means he contributed to game plans. He did quality control stuff. He worked with the linebacker room as well, which is why they brought in Dylan Moses as their UDFA because he worked with Dylan Moses, or uh, yeah, worked with Dylan Moses and, and loved him, obviously. Uh, Daryl Bevel bringing over uh, his talents as, as offensive coordinator, although it kind of seems like they're almost fusing what Bevel does with what Urban does. And I don't really know what this offense is going to look like entirely because of that, because we're seeing some reports out of camp that they're doing a lot of what Urban Meyer does, it, it, you know, with the, the spread option stuff. So we'll, we'll see how much of Bevel's background fuses with Meyer's background to create this kind of interesting hybrid offense. And then uh, Joe Collin, or Collin, excuse me, uh, he was the defensive line coach with the Ravens coming over to be their DC. Very interested to see if he kind of carries over the Ravens tradition of playing man coverage like 55% of the time and blitzing people like crazy. Because I think they might actually have the DBs to make that work now. They did not have it last year. I think they might have it this year. Overall, I, I'm, I'm. Is it weird to say I'm excited about this this front office and, and and coaching staff? Because say what you want about Urban Meyer, he's a championship caliber coach. He's won a lot of titles. He managed some very messy locker rooms and still won championships despite having those messy locker rooms. It's almost like a Mike Tomlin esque skill. To, to balance a whole bunch of strong personalities on each hand. I think he's proven he can do that. Not saying that the Jags have a ton of strong personalities, but I think he's he is a coach that seems to have been uniquely gifted with doing that. Uh, and then obviously Charlie Strong, one of the best leaders of men, I think, at any level of football. And then Daryl Bevel, I think, is a good, a good offensive coordinator, and Joe Cullen will see. So again, it's an interesting coaching staff. I'm curious to see how they all mix together schematically, but um, individually... I like all of them. What say you? Yeah, it's an interesting mix, and it's a fascinating situation because typically the team with the top pick is not this talented, right? The yeah. base of the roster that they're adding to is generally less talented 
than Jacksonville. We were saying even last year that Jacksonville is not one player away, but they're a quarterback and a couple of pieces, maybe one or two on defense and like some offensive linemen away from being like really good. So we knew this team could be good fast, but then there's this perfect storm of they get the top pick. They're ready to move on from their previous leadership. And they have a boatload of salary cap room, like the most Mm -hmm. salary cap room in the league. So you have any player you want at the top of every round. You have millions of dollars available in free agency, and you already have a pretty good roster that's not that many pieces away. So you bring in a talented leader who a lot of people will say a lot of things about Urban Meyer, and he's earned most of those, but he understands the head coach role. This is not a guy that is going to come in and try and play coordinator and impose his, like he understands how to run a program from the top down. Can he do that at the NFL level? We'll see. We've seen a lot of guys that understood that at the college level that couldn't translate it, but more and more college concepts are coming into the NFL. More and more college sort of personnel types are starting to dominate the NFL. And we've seen guys come from college recently and do pretty well. And urban understands that top of the program leadership role uh, i think as well as anybody he's done it in some very high profile places a couple of the most high profile college football programs in the country so that's fascinating also love charlie strong really think he's a fascinating football coach and a fascinating leader bavel i think like could have had a lot more going on in seattle if he wasn't up against a coach that was trying to be more of a coordinator right wasn't necessary necessarily Daryl Bevel's shortcomings that that caused a lot of the Hawks issues when he was there. So fascinated to see what he can do because again, the, the skill positions in Jacksonville are loaded. They have a wide receiving core that we liked last year, you know, and they've added to it. We had a running back that we really liked last year. They added to it up high. They now have a guy as a signal caller that is very, very talented. Uh, more so than anybody that's been on the roster in a few years for sure maybe maybe ever we'll see and i I mean is it is it i don't think it's crazy to say that trevor lawrence is the most gifted quarterback already in franchise history and that's gifted they've had some dudes they've had some dudes but no i like brunel like i'm a mark brunel guy and those those teams that he quarterbacked down there should not be underestimated with fred taylor and like those were really good teams oh Keenan god fred, fred taylor oh fred taylor Keenan Cardell, like they, <laughs> jimmy smith like they had guys like those teams were really good so i'm not gonna say he's the best quarterback in franchise history most gifted like uh yeah trevor could do things that mark brunel couldn't do on his best day <laughs> um david and david garrard had some years had he, some years. he was he was an underrated guy but you know here's a guy with more i think talent right off the boat can he can he maximize that at the nfl level he seems like he's got a really good head on his shoulders he seems adaptable he is really athletic he is crazy tall i saw a picture of uh this is from camp somebody tossing him a football and he was like reaching to catch it just like before he was gonna throw it i swear to god it looked like a toy football <laughs> it was so small compared to his hand. Then you're like, yeah, Trevor's six six. Like he's a really tall guy. It looked like a little like mini promotional football. And it was an NFL ball. So now Trevor's got a ton of weapons. We'll talk about that. But 
I really want to see how they mix. Cullen is probably the dark horse on this staff. What is he going to do? Yeah, you talked about the offensive mix and how much of Urban's concepts are going to be on Bevel and how are they going to mesh. That's interesting. But Cullen is, everybody's focusing on the offense, top pick overall, yeah, and rightfully so. But Cullen's the really sort of like, so what's he going to do with the guys they got? And like they they low-key like got got defensive line talent in Jacksonville. Like Josh Allen, I think, is a good player. You know, has mm-hmm. he lived up to being a top, was it sixth? Sixth pick, I think it was. He's taking like sixth overall somewhere around there. I wouldn't say not yet, but I also don't think he's been an abject failure. I think he's a solid no. player so far that has the talent to be more than solid. Caleb on Chason, Chason, excuse me, grossly misused last year. But I think that he can be used properly by Joe Cullen because they had similar players yeah. in Baltimore that were not just strictly hand in the dirt defensive end. Um, I think like if you use him, like they use Tyus Bowser in Baltimore where it's like, he's going backwards. Sometimes he's going forward. Sometimes he's, he's um, not just in zone, but they played Tyus and man. Sometimes, you know, he was standing up. They lined him up as a, as a mic and, and had him blitz. Like, you move him around like they move Bowser, which Cullen was there on that staff. Caleb on Chason is going to be a really good player. They just horrifically misused him last year, which I warned against when they took him of, please, for the love of God, make him a Sam linebacker that rushes the passer, and they didn't do that. We'll see if they do it now. Um, but they, they got Devon Hamilton, uh, Shahad Ward. I mean, Malcolm Brown, they brought over from New Orleans, who's a really good player. He'll probably start. Um, you know, they drafted Jay Tefele. Like, there's there's talent here for Cullen to work with. Uh, and that's before we even get to the linebackers and the DBs and everything like that. I'm I'm excited to see what he does. Again, I'm, I'm not entirely sure what he will do, <laughs> but there is talent there to allow for some flexibility. Um, why don't we get in the draft here? Because we've alluded to a lot of these guys. We haven't broke them down yet. Uh, they had, what was it, nine total picks, uh, obviously picking at the top of, of every single round. You got Trevor Lawrence first overall. Um, we'll expand on him in a second because I think he deserves his own conversation. Travis Etienne at 25th overall, which at first I was like, ah, taking a running back in the first round. But it seems like they're they're putting him in the H-back role. And, and the H-back role in Urban Meyer's you know, shotgun spread is not your, not the H back role that, uh, that people typically think of, which is basically another way of saying a move tight end. You know, I think, um, you know, we think back to like when Aaron Hernandez was used in, in new England and people called him an H back, you know, he, he blocked a little bit, he caught a lot of passes and everything like that. Uh, but in Myers, in Myers true offense, it's less, Aaron Hernandez, who also played for Meyer of Florida, and more Percy Harvin, where they're getting carries, he's in the slot. It's it's less of a, a blocking position, which a lot of teams use H-backs as, again, as I said, move tight ends, and it's more of a playmaker position. You're, you're, you're Debo Samuels of the world. And so Travis Etienne playing that role, while James Robinson is, is really kind of a true, you know, between the tackles, just pound the rock type running back for them. And you got Etienne working the flanks, operating as a slot receiver. Again, as a true Urban Meyer H back, his own Percy Harvin. Now we start to see it make more sense. Would I have taken Elijah Moore for that role? Absolutely. 
but I can understand why they took Travis Etienne for it because he already has chemistry with Trevor, and he's also very talented in his own right. The fact that they're not making him a true, or I should say this, the fact that they're not making him directly compete with James Robinson's role in this offense, and they have a plan to put them both on the field at the same time, that I think excites me and I think justifies the pick. Uh, Tyson Campbell, the top of round two. I love Tyson Campbell. I had him going in the first round. I thought he was a better corner prospect than Eric Stokes, his teammate from Georgia, who did go in the first round. Really long, uh, really fast, excellent zone awareness, great ball skills. Uh, He's going to be the type of corner that if Joe Cullen wants to play a lot of man coverage, a lot of press man coverage, and blitz his ass off, Tyson's going to allow him to do that. Uh, Walker Little, who we haven't seen play in two, three years now, very, very gifted tackle prospect out of Stanford. The problem is the last time we saw him play, he was getting his ass kicked by Notre Dame because he was like a sophomore going up against grown-ass men like Khaled Kareem, who just took him out back to the woodshed. How, how much has he grown since then? We don't know. He hasn't played. He was injured, and then he opted out last year, so basically back-to-back years of not playing. We'll see, but for a second-round pick, you could do worse than getting a really gifted ball of clay tackle like Walker Little. Andre Sisco, one of my favorite safeties in this class, absolutely incredible range, hits like a truck. Uh, Him going in the third round, shades of Eddie Jackson in terms of value for the athlete to me. I think he's going to be an immediate starter for them. Jay Tefele, fourth round, solid interior presence for them. Um, If I remember, I think you were a big Jay Tefele guy, right? Yeah, okay, the nod tells me everything I need to know. Uh, Jordan Smith, a little early for me. He's got length, he's got burst, but his his hips are stiff as a board. I don't see him as a fourth-round pick. But, hey, they can't all be perfect. Um, Luke Farrell blocking tight end of Ohio State in the fifth round, and then Jalen Camp, a Georgia Tech wide receiver, who, full disclosure, I didn't watch him. So uh, kind of going through that list, what was your take of every pick after Trevor Lawrence? Yeah, Lawrence probably doesn't need any introduction to most folks, and and if he's half of what they think he was, they will be fine. Uh, (laughs) Etienne didn't sit with me super well. The reports that came out early said wide receiver, and I was like, that sits even worse. (laughs) If you're going to take a guy at 25 and he's going to be a wide receiver, you don't take Etienne or HN, what are you doing? Uh, What you've said about, the true H back role and and you mentioned uh you know Debo Samuel I'm thinking Curtis Samuel who actually played a bunch of that role at Ohio State right yeah for Urban Meyer yeah for Urban Meyer so if you think of him like Curtis Samuel and a little bit more like um Matt Rule was able to use Curtis Samuel in his first year in Carolina and you think of HN in that role oh okay and not competing with Robinson. I think that's what most people said is, hey, you got this guy that came out of nowhere. You've got him on a value contract for another couple of years. What are you doing replacing him with a high pick? And you're not. You're adding another factor that the defense has to account for. And I love that. Offense is being multiple and not sort of lining up again and being predictable and saying, no, uh, H in the backfield, so he's going to take a carry. Nope, we can split him out wide. Now we can match him up on guys. And look, Travis H super fast, <laughs> right? Yeah. His his skill is being lightning quick. Go back and watch all of his Clemson. Like, like that guy, when he gets a seam, can break it. And they have other guys like that on this offense. So now you're, you're starting those multiples, right? How are you going to get enough fast guys on the field to cover 
the Visca Chenault and DJ Chark and HM when he splits out wide and then still have, you know, enough girth to take on Robinson when he's running in the backfield. So I like that pick better. The more time goes on, the more we learn about how that role is going to be utilized. It makes more sense. Let's put it that way. Dude, you Tyson, could do some split back stuff with them now that I think about it. Like oh, the yeah. old, old split back, like, you know, Lawrence is under center. I mean, you could even do them in kind of a quasi pistol, pistol yep. if you want to. You got Etienne on one side. You got Robinson on the other side. Both of those guys, I think, have no qualms about lead blocking for each other either. Like, you, pff, have fun trying to figure out how to fit the run. I mean, you got both of them there. And also, Trevor can run. And by the way, you have a freak like DJ Chark and LaVisca Chenault on the outside. So if you want to if you want to not play too high safeties they'll throw it down the field on you like that's yeah man, that, that would offense, be fun the offense even last year there i mean the third and fourth guy at the wide receiver core they had colin johnson right as their sort yeah. of jump ball guy out of texas is like six four six five like that offense had sneaky low-key a bunch of pieces last year that just weren't being maximized because they didn't have quarterback and they didn't really have all the offensive line they needed either but it was like two pieces away. You could see it. And not only did they add that, but they add a guy like HN and you're now, now you're cooking with gas. Now, if you have a creative offensive coordinator, he's got a lot of options on every play to just mess with you because the same thing you could now here's, here's a really fun one that I hope we see at some point, right? Hmm. You run your two back set out of pistol pre-snap motion. HN goes to the slot. Lavishka Chenault rotates off the line and replaces. Him. Oh, <laughs> and you it's and the thing is, it can still go either way. <laughs> it can still go either way, and either of those guys can block because Chenault is tremendously physical. He's also really fast as ball carrier. So what if Robinson blocks for him? Like, forget yeah. it. Yeah. Like, there's so many fun options. So it like I said, Jacksonville is going to be a good watch. Walker Little, I think they needed another offensive line piece. Very talented guy to be able to get a little bit early. Yeah, but they obviously were comfortable with the medical. And if you're comfortable with the medical, that's a value, right? He, he can play to that level. He can justify that pick if he's healthy. Uh, Andre Sisco, little more so than Eddie Jackson. He's a hammer. He's bigger, and he hits more. Like, Eddie could tackle. Andre hits more. Like, he still has the range. He is a great two-way safety. He is big enough and fast enough to go backwards and cover fast receivers deep. He also has no qualms about coming up and blowing up you know, the run in the outside zone and slot, a uh, little bubble screen coming back to the inside. He will hit you. That was 2019. I was watching Syracuse tape, uh, mostly for the DNs. Uh, you know, Alden Robinson was there and it's like, oh man. Yeah. <laughs> who is, that, I think it was, who is it was that a, guy? Oh, that's Andre Cisco. The pit game, I think, is, it, I still remember you sending me the clip and you're like, holy shit. That guy's a missile. <laughs> Yeah, and he came. No. It was one of those where it's like he came from off screen. Oh, he came from and, deep. Yep, and like covered the length of the screen in like half a second. Yeah, and, and just, just massacred the ball. Destroyed this like, kid. Holy oh cow! My God, like you sitting in your chair just kind of cringing. No, that's just going. He he's a very talented guy, and a lot of those guys can't go backwards. He's not that guy. He can do both. Uh, so really good pick for them at the top of the third. Jay Tufeli, I really like guy that plays with his hair on fire. And, People say ball of butcher knives, whatever. Like, he is a guy that will absolutely come with a lot of energy on the inside. A little bit undersized, but um, 
very tough, very technical, and just just ferocious. I think Cullen's going to have a lot of fun with him because he's used players like him on the Ravens to good effect. Um, by the way, I think Tyson Campbell is kind of like Marlon Humphrey for them. A little bit lighter, but in terms of like attitudes, in terms set. of size, play style, like I, I don't think he's quite as talented. I was really high on Marlon Humphrey coming out, but I think Cullen looks at Campbell and goes, he can do a bunch of things I do with Marlon Humphrey. So watch for that. Uh, Jordan Smith, I'm with you. The stiffness bothered me, uh, you know, but he's got skills, right? When he does get by on the edge, he's he's kind of scary. <laughs> so yeah. I mean, he I, did get over 50 pressures in like nine games, which is crazy. Yeah. So again, with a guy like Cullen, who's used varying talents, uh, again, in varying roles, the Ravens were great at sliding guys in, sliding guys out, splitting people out wide, giving them varied responsibilities forward, backward, making it very difficult for, you know, not being predictable, right? Not telling an offense, well, this guy's here, so he's coming. Um, and Jordan Smith will benefit from that, I think, even though he has limitations as a player. Luke Farrell was the first guy I was kind of like, on the, I mean, we're down into, you know, seven picks before we get to a guy I was kind of like, eh, on. That's, <laughs> that's pretty good. And then Jalen Camp, you missed out. There's this thing about Georgia Tech wide receivers when they're really athletic because <laughs> Georgia Tech doesn't throw a ton. Um, Jalen Camp is a physically gifted dude uh, who is just the rich getting richer with that receiving core. He, does he need work? Yep, needs work. Absolutely. Is he a crazy freaking athlete? Yep, sure is. Could he be there? you know, insanely talented fifth wide receiver option that also plays special teams. Totally could be. So big Jalen Camp fan. Uh, why don't we get to the the UDFAs? And there's one that I really want to zero on here. I mentioned him before. Well, there's two that I want to talk about um, out of this list of, of six or seven guys. First being uh, Josh Imitar-Bebe. Thank you for telling me the pronunciation for the show because I always screwed it up throughout the season. The, his kind of calling card is he's one of the freakiest freaks to ever freak. Like 46 and a half vert, 11 yeah. 3 broad. What's weird about him, though, is he's still a low 4 5 guy, but he plays like a low 4 5 guy. And so it's almost like, okay, he's really explosive, explosive in the first few steps, and the jumps kind of back that up. But he tops out really quickly in his speed. He's like, he's. For a guy who's that explosive, he is a one-gear guy, and I don't remember ever seeing somebody who is that explosive being a one-gear guy. He's like one of the freakiest, but also one of the weirdest athletes ever. It's wild to me. And then uh, the other one, Dylan Moses, the fact that he went to Jacksonville, where his ex-coach from last year, Charlie Strong, is, who's the linebacker coach, and Dylan Moses was a very highly touted linebacker prospect coming out of high school, was a really good player early on in Alabama. Injuries kind of mounted up, played through a knee injury all of last year, and you could tell. He didn't do any pro day testing because, honestly, it would have killed him even more than, than, than this. Like He still went undrafted because his medicals were not clean. Now, whether or not the, the prognosis of long-term recovery is there, I have no idea. I don't have access to his medical information. 
What I do know is that Charlie Strong wanted this dude because he's really smart, he's really tough, and if there is a chance of him getting back to 100% of what he was early on in his career, freshman and sophomore year at Alabama, where he was a really, really good player, they get a value here. And the fact that Charlie Strong knew what was going on with him last year medically means he kind of had the inside track on knowing, is there a chance that this can be a gem? And I I think that Charlie clearly recruited him to go to Jacksonville. And I think Dylan clearly wanted to play again for Charlie, who's highly, highly respected by virtually everybody you're ever going to talk to. So Dylan Moses intrigues me mainly because who, who cares if he fails? He's an undrafted free agent. He's free. But if he hits, I think Jacksonville can be one of the places that he hits because he already has familiarity with a very, very good linebacker coach in Charlie Strong. Yeah, and if he hits, even as a, a second linebacker or backup, a strong backup linebacker, you got him for free. Again, like you said, highly touted recruit, very talented. The injury thing, he he probably doesn't have to play right away, right? You, you're not. Yeah, he's he's not going to as UDFA. You're, you don't have that kind of pressure on a guy. So if he needs another year to be on the practice squad, or maybe he takes an early redshirt, right? Maybe they they put him on IR early and just keep him there and. Maybe he needs another full year to heal up to get back to having a chance. But even if he comes back next year and he's a strong like second or third linebacker for them, it's a free shot. Uh, and he's got as good a shot in Jacksonville as he does anywhere else. Imitur Bebe played for Illinois. A lot of Illinois fans uh, really wanted him to go to the Bears. Super crazy athlete. Not a great wide receiver. Right? The, the position <laughs> title is wide receiver. And Although he has amazing athletic talents, it doesn't all put together on the field. Some you see it, but not often enough. The consistency's not there. And he's not, he's just really not that dynamic. He's not as dynamic as his testing numbers indicate, that's for sure. So if he turns into something, great. I know a lot of people were sort of, go get him, go get him. I was like, eh, take him or leave him for me. Um, the other guy on that list is DJ Daniels from Georgia, who was kind of their do-it-all-everything, right? Played with Tyson Campbell. Yeah. He was kind of their star. Uh, Matt Bowen earlier on this podcast said slot safety, right, which we both sort of gravitated towards. And we're like, we know what that means. And that's that's really <laughs> what he did. He was he was truly the guy. He used to piss me off to no end that teams would label guys DB on their roster. I was like, what is he? Is he a nickel? Is he a corner? Is he a safety? Like, DJ Daniels is truly a DB. Right, he was sort of the fourth or fifth guy in that in that Georgia secondary, and he's a talented guy. He's he's a glue guy in the secondary. He can kind of do a little bit of everything. Close to the line, he can play too high. You don't necessarily want him going free safety solo up deep, but he made a lot of plays for Georgia, even in that very talented secondary. Again, both corners drafted early. Safeties go. We've talked uh, about his safety running mate a lot. Um, but just an interesting guy to get, again, for free. And they sort of loaded up in the secondary, right? We're going to talk about free agency in a minute. They, they went out and got corner. And we talk about big money contracts, right? Some of the biggest money they threw in free agency was at a corner. They drafted a corner. <laughs> they got corners in free agency, in UDFA, right? So they knew that that secondary needed some help. And they, they went after it with everything. Draft, UDFA, free agency. We're going we're gonna to shotgun approach this thing and fix it. And I, I mean, that's kind of like my favorite way of addressing a problem 
is never putting all of your eggs in one yeah. basket. Like even even for a team like say Carolina, where it's like, hey, we need a press corner. We're going to take J.C. Horn, who we know is going to be really good. That didn't stop them from taking uh, Keith Taylor from Washington in the fifth round because they're like, we worst case scenario, we at least got two guys that we think are really good, and if they both hit, great. But if one sure. of them misses, we still have good odds that the other one's going to hit. You know, it's why, uh, you know, taking Kirk Cousins in the fourth round if you're taking RG3. If one of them misses, and one of them did miss, there's still Kirk Cousins, who ended up being a pretty good quarterback. Just because you have a weakness, but you have the ability to address that weakness early, doesn't mean that you can't address that weakness late as well, because even the early picks, at best, you have a 50% chance of success. So you might as well... I don't know. I'm not a math major. Compound the chances of success. Is that a proper term? Uh, By just pe- addressing it multiple times. People used to go after, and and rightfully so, Phil Emery, Phil Emery when he was the GM of the Bears. But one of my favorite things about Phil Emery is if there was a problem, he was going to fix it. <laughs> and he was going to take three shots to fix it. It was either one shot in the draft and two free agents or two shots in the draft and one free agent. He was going to bring in three options, give them to his coaches and say, so you had a problem at X. I got you three X's. Figure it out. Right. And he would do that for two or three problems. He would prioritize and he would throw multiple options at each. And then he'd be like, done, fixed. And some people might be like, well, that's wasteful. Well, it's not because the hit rate in the draft is 30% free agency slightly better maybe 40 maybe maybe 50 if you've got a really good pro scouting staff right so again you combine those odds and you say somebody's gonna patch this hole right and the other one might not but that's okay we didn't put our team at risk of saying well we really countered on this guy now he's not there and we still have the hole yeah so i i really like what they did I really, really like what they did. And that's before we even get to the free agents they signed. But just in terms of <laughs> the young blood they've they've brought in, I'm I am all aboard this this uh young Jags train. But why don't we talk about some of the veterans that they kind of complemented these picks with? Uh first there's, a a, <laughs> there's a that's, lot. There's a lot. That I I'm with you. We can totally love the draft and say that's amazing. And you look again, they had the most money available in free agency at the same time as the overall pick. That very rarely happens. And they added a boatload of talent. I mean, namely, uh first one that jumps to mind, Shaq Griffin getting a shit ton of money, forty million dollars. Uh over the next three years. They brought in um Roy Robinson Harris from the bears for what is like eight, eight point one, eight point two, somewhere around there. Um, over the next three years, 8.1 per, I should say totals like 23 and a half million. And you're a big Roy Robinson. I mean, who isn't a big Roy Robertson Harris fan? Actually, now that I think about it, he's a really, really good player. And, and you knew even going into free agency, that this dude was going to have a big market. I told you, I sent yeah. you a text like a couple weeks before free agency set off. And it was not in any way, uh, wishy-washy. You were like, man, I was like, no, RRH will not be back with the Bears. And you were like, but and I was like, nope. I think you said nope. that there were 11 teams lining up. To, uh, to talk I, to him. Yeah, folks, I were talking. I was talking to because uh, I sort of was the same way. I was like, eh, maybe, they, you know, it's a low money year. Maybe they sneak in like he got injured. Uh, maybe the guy I was no. talking to was like, <laughs> absolutely freaking not like 
he has 12, it was like 11 or 12 teams lined up right now. And it was like three weeks before free agency. And I was like, ah, damn it. One of those come through. <laughs> He's not going to be a Navy and orange anymore. Good for him. Developing player. Great guy that, that played extremely well when the, the, when the line was healthy, um, when he had Khalil Mack and Hicks and Goldman, like he looked like a terror at the start of 20, uh, 20, uh, 2019, the first five or six games when the Bears defense was on a historic pace, like matching and bettering the 85 Bears pace. Like Ray Robertson Harris was messing people up because he was getting single coverage all the time and he was destroying it. And then, you know, Keem Hicks got hurt. Lil Mac kind of had to try and do two roles at once. People were able to rotate a little bit more away and st- and all of a sudden Roy Robertson's Harris productions dropped off. But when he's got a bunch of talented guys around him, Roy Robertson Harris one on one can be a wrecker. Yeah, if he's if he's the Robin and not the Batman, you're good to go. Because Akeem Hicks can be Batman. Khalil Mack can be Batman. That Roy Robinson Harris is not Batman. But he's a really damn good Robin. So I'll give him that. Um, the other pick that I, or the other free agent that I really like they brought in was Marvin Jones on a two-year deal. <laughs> a lot of people forget about that. Yeah. So their receiving core right now, looking over it, your starting three, or I guess I should say your top four, because they also brought in Jamal Agnew from Detroit. They brought in two Detroit receivers, uh, probably because Daryl Bevel has familiarity with them. Again, coaching familiarity is a pretty strong theme here with how the Jags built their team. Uh, DJ Chark, Marvin Jones, LaVisca Chenault, Jamal Agnew is your top four. Philip Dorsett and Colin Johnson are your wide receivers five and six. We haven't even gotten to Jalen Camp yet. Farrow Cooper there, when healthy, um, is at least has a chance to make it as a returner. And then uh, Josh Imitor Bebe, if you haven't figured out yet that he's a practice squad player at best, just based on the guys ahead of him on the depth chart, that should do it right there. Like, even Philip Dorsett might not even make this team because Colin Johnson's pretty talented. Like this is a loaded receiving core, low key loaded and not enough people are paying attention to it. Yeah. It was good before. Like it was good last year. We were talking about it. We're like, man, if they could get a little more time to throw and they had a legit quarterback, like these are some scary options. And then they go out and add and add and add and add. And they didn't have that many losses you're just making more options. It's going to be incredibly, incredibly competitive. I don't know that we'll see a trade just because of the way the financial system is in the league this year. I don't know that the money's there for that, but this is a team that if it was a regular cap year and somebody loses a wide receiver in camp, they'd be calling the Jaguars, right? They'd yeah. be saying, Hey, can we get that guy that's fourth or fifth or sixth? You know, can we grab that rookie who's probably going to be on your practice squad and we're going to poach him anyways, so maybe we'll give you a seventh-round pick for him? Like, that's that's the kind of roster you're talking about in Jacksonville now, and I don't think a lot of people appreciate that, that they are you know, have multiples at any given position of depth, and wide receiver is one of them, and a lot of people just don't even think about Marvin Jones. They're like, oh, yeah, Chark, and, you know, they drafted that guy. Blah, blah, blah. It's like, mm. And then you talk about, you know, HN being a guy that's rotating into wide receiver on multiple sets. And you're like, forget it. What, like, how are you going to cover all those guys? It's, it's really interesting because, you know, Trevor is a lot of things, but he can distribute the football. He's not a quarterback that locks on. He's not a guy that favors one or two targets and nobody else gets it. Even in Clemson, we saw him spread the ball around effectively. He can hit the guy that's open. There's going to be guys open. 
And, and I'll say this about Trevor, you know, people, we kind of glossed over him in the draft section because we've been talking about him for three years, basically, or four years now. Hell, even before that, going back to high school, he's the number one recruit in the country. I think everybody has a little bit of, like, fatigue about talking about Trevor Lawrence, but he is legitimately worth the first overall pick, and he's been worth the first overall pick since he was 17. Like, it's, he is a, now, would I put him above Andrew Luck as a prospect? Probably not, because Andrew was like, Andrew was Andrew. Andrew was but, everything, but, but in the terms fact of that like, you're even talking about him in the same breath, yes, is is evaluation of of Trevor, and it's it's rare, as you alluded to or said in the beginning, it's rare to have a first overall pick destination actually have a supporting cast year one to support a first overall pick. He's lucky. And I don't say this often. He is lucky to go to the Jaguars. He does not have to slum it for a couple of years, which is really cool because that's that's one of the tough things about being a top overall pick is you're usually going. I mean, look at Joey Burrow. Like Joey Burrow goes to Cincinnati, and it's not great. We knew their line was destitute at best, (laughs) Uh, and you know he had some options, but he he ran for his life a lot, and he ended up getting blasted out you know, on an injury, which is really rough. You don't want to see that for a top overall pick. The chance that that happens to Trevor is much lower. Could it? Sure. But could Trevor also go and pin the needle the other way and excel really early, distributing the ball to all these targets in Jacksonville? Yeah, they could be good fast. The other thing about their secondary class is they didn't stop with the draft, right? They drafted a corner. They drafted safety. They, They brought in, you know, Shaq Griffin. Sidney Jones, they brought in a bunch of safeties, Rayshon Jenkins, Jonathan Ford, Josh Jones, who I actually really like. Um, you know, that's between, it's like six, seven defensive backs. They knew that they were short in the back end in the secondary, and they they hit it as hard as they could in the draft, free agency. They just, they were like, again, we're going to, we're not going to, this is not going to be a single patch fix. We're going to bring in a bunch of guys. We're going to foster competition, and we're going to come out with a solid defense because of it. Uh, Before we get into the Tennessee Titans here, I do want to take a moment to thank our sponsor for this week, Manscaped. Manscaped offers precision engineering tools for all of a man's grooming needs, including their newly launched fourth generation trimmer, the Lawn Mower 4.0. I've had every version myself since the 1.0, so I'm one of the few people that can actually directly compare all of these myself, and the new version is well worth the wait. As usual, the Lawnmower 4.0 is extremely delicate on the skin and reduces nicks and cuts with their skin safe technology. It's waterproof, so you can use it in the shower. It has a multi functioning on and off switch with a travel lock as well as an LED spotlight. And it comes with a variety of guard lengths and can be wirelessly charged, which also helps the battery last longer by using electromagnetic induction. It is truly a well-built and well-designed trimmer for all of your grooming needs. And if you're interested in getting one for yourself, you can get 20% off plus free shipping by using promo code bootleg at manscaped.com. Again, that is 20% off and free shipping on a lawnmower 4.0 trimmer with promo code bootleg at manscaped.com. All right, uh, moving on to the Titans here. Probably the uh, prevailing favorite to win the division this year, and for good reason. They have a lot of talent, strong coaching staff. But they did lose Arthur Smith, 
actually they have two first year coordinator coordinators here. So I think we're going to find out really quick uh, how much impact Arthur Smith did or did not have on this team uh, with the transition over to Todd Downing. Really, really fascinating team to look at. I think they made some very good acquisitions uh, in the draft and free agency to strengthen an already strong team, probably addressing or maybe covering up for some past mistakes they've made in the last couple years. Overall, again, I think the Titans are, are... not just going to be in contention for the division, but maybe in contention for a lot more than that. Let's get into their coach and leadership structure to kick it off. you got John Robinson going into year six already as general manager. Seems like just yesterday they hired him. I think he's overall been very strong since he was brought in. He's made uh, a lot of really, really damn good picks. Um, you know, Derek Henry's homegrown talent, A.J. Brown's homegrown talent. Uh, I think Taylor Lewan was picked right before they brought him in, or maybe that was John Robinson's first pick. I can't remember. Um, but, you know, he, he's made some really good signings as well. The Ben Jones signings was good. Uh, bringing over Ryan Tannehill was a John Robinson move, which obviously really paid off. Um, I look at, at, you know, getting Jayon Brown in the fifth round in 2017 was a very good pick for them. Uh, Kevin Byard as a third rounder in 2016 was great. Like he's, he's hit on a lot of dudes in the draft and free agency. And overall, I think been a very good general manager, Mike Vrabel in year four. Oddly, I think he's a better head coach than a coordinator because as a head coach, he can really kind of focus more on culture, leadership, you know, keeping the locker room buying in to his coordinators. I don't really think he was a great defensive coordinator, to be perfectly honest, in terms of um, in-game adjustments and all that. But I think he's really good at at the CEO-type responsibilities of a head coach. You know, the the John Harbaugh's, the Mike Tomlins. I think that's really where he shines. And so, again, I think he's a better head coach than a coordinator. And then you got Todd Downing and Shane Bowen, both in year one at OC and DC, respectively. The Todd Downing thing is going to be fascinating for me to watch because the last time we saw him in a play-calling role was with the Raiders four or five years ago, if I remember correctly. And that year, uh, Derek Carr did not do well at all, mainly because the Raiders were 27th in play-action pass usage. Like They just, for whatever reason, steered clear of play-action, which, as we know now, is not the recipe for success for Derek Carr. And so I'm, I'd be curious to see if he learned a lesson from that and will not force Ryan Tannehill to play without play action because Ryan Tannehill is another guy who's very good on play action. I really hope he learned from that and they, they emphasize pound the rock with Derrick Henry and 70% of the time Tannehill throws the ball, it better be after a run fake. That's really what I want them to emphasize. And I think if they do, they can have success. Yeah, it's a fascinating structure, and like you, I I think as we think about guys ascending the ranks, right? They're a position coach, then they're a coordinator, and then they're trying to get that job as a head coach. We always think that they're going to be less effective, right? That there's just more to do at each level, and you know, if they were a superstar as a position coach, they could probably be a good coordinator, but even as a superstar coordinator, can they handle the head coach role? And there's not many like Vrabel, who I thought was a decent position coach, floundered a little bit as a coordinator who then ascends to the head coach role and and blossoms. And he really has. He seems 
united with the leadership, with his GM, with his players. He has created culture. He seems, what's the opposite of hot seat, <laughs> right? Totally yeah, settled, yeah. right? He's not going anywhere. Mike Vrabel is the Titans right now, and they're experiencing great success, not in spite of him, but because of him, because he's really good in that role. And that's just a rare thing to see is a guy sort of go up the ranks, lose a little bit of effectiveness, actually get the top job and and be better. And he has been. Uh, he's a big reason for this team's success. Um Downing, it'll be really interesting to see how much carries over from the Arthur Smith era. They have, you know, more, not even arguably, I was going to say arguably, they have more offensive weapons now. Um, and, but Smith was so good at meshing those weapons and as a great play caller, right? Play calling is a, is a little bit science and a little bit art right? It's knowing when to pull the levers. And he was artful as a play caller. Like he had his limitations, but he understood what his team could do. He understand how play action built that with the threat of Derrick Henry. And he also understand, understood better than anybody, Ryan Tannehill's strengths. Ryan Tannehill is top five quarterback in the league over the last two years. And I know I'll take a lot of flack for that comment. It's demonstrably true. Oh yeah, right. I don't. I don't even think it's it's arguable. Oh well, you don't, but I guarantee there'll be comments <laughs> that are like Tannehill top five. What are you nuts? And for the last two years, he has been. And it's largely been because Arthur Smith's been pulling the levers really, really well. He understands how all the pieces fit together, and he called them at the right times. And the the Titans have had success because of it. John Robinson, super underrated job guy that has been very good in the draft, and again has a mesh with his team needs his coaches needs his coaches desires the culture fit he's bringing in talent that fits the system not just talent and he's done it in free agency too Tannehill is the is the key addition there uh that really has been the straw that stirred the drink but he's done it on both sides he's done it on the draft and free agency and that's a mark of a really good general manager and they have a strong roster because of it and they've been enjoying success because of again the mesh between front office head coach talent on the field it's it's just been a really nice chemistry for the titans and they're they're a force in the afc to to be at the top every year looking at who they brought in the draft um again very very strong class from top to bottom uh a few picks i like more than more than others but um even going into to, to the sixth round i felt like they were getting really good players caleb farley uh, round one pick 22 now, when you kind of dig into to Farley's um, specific medical issues, I don't really want to call them issues. Concerns? No. Questions? Questions. That's probably the best word. Surgeries. The, Let's go with surgeries. Surgeries. <laughs> <laughs> the, the likelihood that he is just fine is like 80%. And if Caleb Farley is just fine there is a higher likelihood than most corner prospects that he will be really, really, really damn good in this league. He would have been a top five to six pick if he was completely clean medical. Like, I'm talking potentially going ahead of J.C. Horn. And J.C. Horn's the the highest-graded DB that I've had since, since Jalen Ramsey came out. And as freaky as J.C. Horn is, Caleb Farley is like a truly generational athlete. I know we throw that term around 
generational. Absolutely generational. His recovery speed, I haven't seen anything like it since, God, uh, young Patrick Peterson. And even that, it still might be better. Mainly because Patrick Peterson was never out of phase anyway. But you get the idea. Uh, his his recovery speed, his length, his hips. And he, he's not even fully developed. Like, he is a phenomenal prospect. And the only reason he was even there at 22 is because a lot of teams didn't know what to make of his back. And uh, But again, I, I did some research on the surgery and the recovery rates. And um, I actually talked to an orthopedic surgeon. And he's like, you know, the, the opinions will be different for every single doctor. But the likelihood that he will be okay is pretty good. And if he's okay, he is absolutely worth Way, way more than the 22nd overall pick. Um, Dylan, is it Raddins or Raidens? I never actually got clarification on that. Dylan, the the offensive tackle they took in round two. I would say Raddins. Raddins. And I've also uh, heard Redunds. So those were the two I heard was Raddins it, and Redunds. So. It's the wild, wild west out here. Either way, let's just go with, with Raddins, and I'll get clarification after the show because uh, again, I try, usually for name pronunciations, I try to like think, okay, let's get you know, an announcer saying the name, because usually the teams will tell the announcers how to pronounce it. They're usually not talking about an offensive lineman. So I just, I couldn't hear it from anywhere to get clarification on how to pronounce it, but I'll look it up. Hopefully maybe the Titans have put out something since, uh, since he was drafted, but either way, um, really, really talented tackle probably has a good chance to start over Kendall lamb early on, if not in week one fits, what I hope they will do on offense very well, which is a lot of outside zone with Derrick Henry. I think he's a great fit for that, for that kind of system. Um, pass protection, I do think he needs to work on his anchor a little bit. I feel like that was kind of the one, and you saw the senior bowl pop up a few times. Like When people got into his chest, I didn't feel like he was able to kind of re-anchor super well. So that's the, I kind of want him to work on core strength, lower body strength. Um, but other than that, he's a very, very talented prospect, and to be honest, might even be a better prospect than the guy they took in the first round last year that is no longer on the team. Like, I I liked Isaiah Wilson as a player, not as a person, but as a player. But I, I think that uh, Radden's skill set fits what they want better than Wilson's did, even when he was coming out as a first-round prospect. Uh, and then Elijah Molden uh, and Monty Rice were the two third-round picks they got. Uh, I'll start with Rice. He is a linebacker's linebacker. You know, I, I guarantee you Mike Vrabel was looking at this dude and, and saw the toughness that he plays with, the intelligence that he plays with, probably saw a little bit of it himself in this guy. He was the most underrated player on that Georgia defense, by far, to me. Constantly overlooked. Not super exceptional in any one area physically, but solid in all of them. He had good range, had good strength. Um, and again, he's, he's very, very smart, very disciplined in coverage, just a, an extremely solid linebacker in all areas. Uh, so I really, really like him as a third round pick. I think he's got a good chance to, if not push Rayshon Evans for the starting job week one, outright take his job because Evans, I think has been, I mean, there's no other way to put it pretty disappointing as a first round pick. And I don't think Evans is going to be long for this roster. And then Elijah Molden, 
great nickel prospect. You want to call him a safety, you want to call him a corner. I don't care. Either way, he's playing in the slot. That's where he's comfortable. Plays the run exceptionally well. Um, I don't necessarily, if I would directly compare him to Buda Baker, but I think they play with the same attitude, which I think is one of the highest compliments I can give to a DB is you play with the same attitude of Buda Baker. Uh, not quite as explosive, but I, I think he's still got the fluidity and the ball skills. Uh, Des, Pitch, uh, Des Fitzpatrick from Louisville. I watched him a little bit in passing when I was watching Tutu Atwell. He's okay. I don't think he's going to play much for them, just looking at the receivers they have ahead of him on the on the depth chart. Um, and then Rashad Weaver, pretty good value in the fourth round, really fluid hips, really good hands, not really explosive, which was his problem. That's why he fell to the fourth round. I remember you and I watched him together against Notre Dame. And uh, we really liked the technical aspect, and we really like his hip fluidity, but it's just there wasn't a whole lot of explosiveness there. And then uh, Racy McGrath, or McMath, excuse me, from LSU was the other guy. <laughs> you know, they've had first-round pick after first-round pick come out of the LSU receiver court. He, was, he, was, um, he wasn't even Robin, and he wasn't even Alfred. He was uh, Commissioner Gordon. <laughs> Like that's that's what he was on that team, and then Brady Breeze, ultra tough, hard nosed safety, does not have the range to play in the post like a Kevin Byard does, but that's fine. He probably won't be used that way anyway. He is a pure special teams demon type guy. Who worst case scenario, if you have to throw him in there to start a few games at safety, he's not going to lose you the game. He's not as dynamic as you know, say a, a Kevin Byard or Elijah Molden if they want to make Molden a full time safety, but. Again, he's tough, he's smart, and he will play his ass off on special teams, which means he's got a really good chance to stick around in the league. So overall, very, very satisfied with this Titans draft class. I think they knocked it out of the park. And I think they got, let's see, one, two, three, four, at least four starters out of this class, which is pretty pretty darn good. Yeah, Caleb Farley, one of my favorite corners in this draft. The medical concerns, especially when they when they occurred in the run-up to the draft, scared a lot of people off. But such an incredible athlete and a good player who is not yet polished, right? We talk about floors and ceilings. He is above his floor. He is not at his ceiling. He has a lot of times when you're watching his game where you think, oh man, he could do that better. He could do that. And he still makes the play, right? He still comes back with that incredible speed and length and makes the play. And you're like, he didn't even play it the right way. And he made the play. So as <laughs> he starts to dial in that technique, as he gets good coaching, as he develops as a pro and understanding the pro game and, and understanding the concepts that receivers are trying to throw against him, He's just just going to go up. He just has room to improve. As long as his health stays clear, the sky's the limit. He could be he could be a top ten corner in the league. He's he's that kind of talented. Um, Dylan, I really like, especially as a guy that can get to the second level. He almost looks like a tight end. He's not super bulky, and he's really good at that bracket block. Right, he can get out the second level. He can get out to the outside if his guy's not there. He can get to the second level turn to the inside and just you're not getting by him because he's athletic he's good at hitting targets on the move uh as a tackle and with derrick henry that could be deadly you know that might be your one <laughs> guy that's getting a shot at derrick henry and dylan radins is there and he's like you're not even coming close like you're not getting around me and henry's gonna be by me before you do so interesting fit with their system monty rice is a hunter 
and he is i compared him to an owl before and i remember you laughing hysterically because <laughs> owls when they hunt their head doesn't move everything else moves and they just stay super focused and when he's cutting through the trash to go get a running back he's just focused right his head doesn't move and he hits him he finds a way through all the people that are moving all the dynamic play around him and he can nail that guy and he does regularly so really interesting player i was a bit his size wasn't great for me but it was functional his range not great especially outside the sort of numbers um that you know if you've got fast players that are going to get to the edge they can get around him uh, but man, he plays with great instincts and he's always going forward. He doesn't get caught up in the trash. He's very good at just sort of avoiding stepping around, stepping through, making himself skinny. We say that about running backs, but linebackers can do it too, coming the other way. Very talented at that. Elijah Molden, that's the guy that Matt Bowen called a slot safety. Just a dynamic player around the line. Physical, smart, good instincts, makes a ton of tackles for loss. Uh, more than Buddha, uh, who played at the same school, I would compare him to a guy like Tyron Matthew around the line. He's not as good as Tyron Matthew down the field in space. He doesn't have the the speed and the instinct uh, in deeper patterns that a guy like Tyron Matthew has. But around the line, same thing. Good trigger, good instincts, very physical, um, not afraid to stick his nose in there. Very, very talented impact player around the line. Um, Des Fitzpatrick, I really like in route running. He's got good size, good hands, and the senior bowl over and over again. He got open in those short to medium routes. He's not a deep threat guy. He's not the guy that's going to go down the sidelines. I, I compare a lot of people to T. Higgins, right? That I did it earlier in this podcast that can get down and get vertical. He's not great there. But at the senior role, man, you put him as a big slot, you get him inside, watch him break, he was open over and over again. I made a Twitter post about it during the senior role. He's just there and he catches the ball. Is he open by a lot? No. Is he super flashy? Does he have those amazingly lightning feet? Mm-mm. But he can set a guy up, get him tilting one way, two steps on a break, catch the ball, take the hit, and going down. Not a huge yak threat either, but talented inside wide receiver. Can probably play five, six years in the league pretty easily as a third or fourth wide receiver because he's got that skill. Rashad Weaver, is, uh, he, he's basically Josh Reynolds. Yeah, poor Josh I Reynolds. Mean, they, they, <laughs> they, well, they have two of the same guy now because when I, yeah. what you just described to me is Josh Reynolds who they already signed when they took Des Fitzpatrick. Yeah, we were talking about this pre-show that Josh Reynolds was like, man, I'm going to go in, I'm going to fight for the number three, I'm going to get targets, like, yeah, and then... Damn it. Nope. <laughs> Julio nope. Jones. Ah, I got Julio Jones. Who who among us hasn't been Julio Jones? Um <laughs> Racy McMath is a little bit more of that vertical guy. He's the classic, you said the other receiver at LSU. LSU is is famous for recruiting athletes at wide receiver. Guys that are big, tall, fast, can run. Might not be the most technically advanced guy now. The guy, you know, Jamar Chase, different animal altogether. Um you know, Terrence Marshall, Terrence Marshall, different guy. Like Racy McMath is that classic LSU athlete wide receiver, right? He's tall, yeah. he's fast, uh, he can jump. Is he the greatest wide receiver? No. Uh, can he can he get a role? It'd be interesting. He's a great athlete. And Brady Breeze, I really think that again, you you said Vrabel saw some of himself in a linebacker, right? I think I think Vrabel looks at a guy like Brady Breeze, and even though they don't play the same position, goes. Yeah, it's a guy I want on my team. 
right? That's a hard-nosed guy. That's a hammer. And I really think they could bring him in as a dimebacker because he's not small, right? It's a that's big actually guys. a good idea. Yeah, that's how yeah. he plays, right? When you watch his tape at Oregon, again, he's not a coverage guy so much as you're not, you don't want him one-on-one with a small slot receiver. That's that's not his game. But again, going forward in the cone, we talked about Andre Sisko's ability for Jacksonville to trigger and blow guys up. That's what you see on tape. And, and of course, that lends itself to special teams. But you say, look, if that guy's not going deep, trigger and go get who's ever in the backfield, whether it's the rolling quarterback, whether it's the bubble screen, like, because he can do that. He's aggressive. He has abs, he's absolutely fearless throwing his body into the play. Just a high impact player. I think Vrabel loves that, that hard nose toughness, uh, fearlessness. And Brady Breeze has got that now. limited skill set but a good coach is going to take a player with a limited skill set and put them in position to succeed and i think if you're doing that with brady breeze that's a dimebacker role yeah anytime you see somebody can get an interception with a broken hand that's definitely a, a Vrabel type <laughs> that's player. a Vrabel guy right there yeah you get your Vrabel badge uh, looking at the uh the undrafted class they brought in uh, really the the only one that kind of stuck out to me uh, was Miller Forrestal, the tight end from Alabama. Again, one of these guys, not super notable physical traits in any given area. Not explosive, not the biggest guy, not the longest guy, not the fastest guy. But um, kind of, this is going to be sacrilegious to say, has <laughs> has a little bit of Jason Witten to him, where Jason Witten couldn't run but he was always getting open towards the end because he's smart. He knows where to settle, catches everything. Um, he's tough. Like Miller Forrestal is basically 32-year-old Jason Witten, but as a rookie. And there's value to that. There's value to that. That's oh, why he man. went undrafted. But when you look at their tight end depth chart, you got Anthony Ferkser, Jeff Swaim. That's it. He's yeah. going to make the team. If he doesn't make the team with this tight end depth chart, there must be something wrong because he should make the team. Um, but they also brought in another tight end you like, Bradley Moore, who is kind of the exact opposite, who's freaky in almost every single area, but uh, did not get the same kind of recognition as Forstall because Forstall played for Alabama and Bradley Moore played for Kansas State. Yeah, Bradley Moore is a guy I'm really excited about, again, because he comes into a situation, we always talk about a path to playing time, and he comes into a situation with Tennessee where there is not a super established. Ferkser played better than expected last year, in a bigger role, I think, than most people expected. Fantasy football players got familiar with his name as to, who's this guy in Tennessee catching all these balls? Uh, but there's not, a, you know, you look at like, last time we did the NFC South and we did Tampa Bay's tight end room, right? There's three guaranteed NFL starters at the top of their depth chart. That is not the case with the Titans. So a guy like Bradley Moore, who had a really good 2019 and was down a little bit in 2020, also played at Kansas State, not Alabama. It's a guy that has the potential to come in, wow him in camp as a receiving threat, a true receiving threat at tight end, which is something Ferkser, again, was in that sort of middle to intermediate game good 
Bradley Moore can get a little bit deeper, uh, and he can also split out a little bit. So I'm excited about Bradley Moore, not just because Bradley Moore is an interesting player, but becomes he comes into a depth chart that is not settled at tight end, and he can earn a spot. So I think his path to playing time, or at least his path to being having a, a guaranteed spot, not a guaranteed spot, but having a spot on the roster, uh, even the 53 is decent because he brings something that they don't currently have in their tight end room, and that's always fun. Uh, looking at the veterans that they brought in, um, kind of an interesting mix here. So uh, the two biggest deals they signed, or quote-unquote biggest deals they signed, were uh, Bud Dupree, five-year, $82.5 million deal, uh, and then Janoris Jenkins bringing him in for about 7.5 per year for two years. Um, and the Jenkins deal was, was necessary because uh, – they, they let Adore Jackson go, which was interesting to me. That That's something that I did not expect. And then they, they brought in 33-year-old Janoris Jenkins. In, in a vacuum, I would have gone with Adore if you asked me to choose between the two of them, but that's just a decision they made, so we'll see if that works out. Um, now, that being said, it's likely that Jenkins will start across from Bud Dupree. Still not entirely sure who their nickel's going to be. I... I would assume that Elijah Molden's in the running there, but it just depends. Do they want him to be a full-time safety or do they want him to be a full-time nickel? I guess we'll find out. Those are questions we'll get answered in camp. Uh, but back to Bud Dupree again, the, the kind of main guy they brought in. His development in Pittsburgh has been fascinating to me because he was a raw athlete uh, coming out of Kentucky who had incredible explosiveness. It was like a 42 and a half inch vert at 260 plus pounds, which is rare among rare. But he also had really short arms. It was 32 and a half inches, if I remember correctly. So he was seen as a guy who had a lot of potential, but also had some glaring weaknesses because guys with a lack of length can sometimes struggle a little bit in terms of getting off blocks in the run game. But then we saw him go to Pittsburgh, and because he was so explosive and so accurate with his hands, he actually became a really, really good run defender because he was able to just shock offensive tackles completely off their base, and they they couldn't really move him. So again, even though he, he had a length disadvantage against virtually every tackle he played against, he was able to attack so ruthlessly and so accurately with his punch and with his lower body explosiveness that he was a better run defender than even TJ Watt was on the other edge. And I remember I asked, um, recently I asked uh, Jedrick Wills about it. Um, and I said, you know, in, in, in outside zone, what's a harder block for you to do? Um, kicking out TJ or reaching Cam Hayward. And he said, you know, I didn't play against TJ that much because he was mostly on the other side. But I'll tell you this, uh, trying to kick out Bud Dupree, you're not going to be successful <laughs> because he is a, a wall of a human being. And he he's he's just a badass. And that's coming from from Wills, who's played against a lot of really good uh, edge defenders as a rookie there for the Browns. And not to mention a, a lot of really good edge defenders in the SEC when he was at Alabama. And so if he's saying it, I believe him, that Bud Dupree is a badass and a really, really good run defender. I think it was a fantastic signing for them. I know he's coming off injury, but um, I think he's a perfect fit for what they needed, a perfect fit for what they want to do. 
And he's uh, he's another one of these guys where I look at him and it's like, that's a Vrabel kind of player. Hard-nosed, tough against the run, all effort, all day, good locker room guy, uh, just a, a true home run signing. That's yeah, crazy. Bud Dupree is so strange because I was a huge Bud Dupree fan in the draft. And a lot of people weren't. And then he came out and he didn't hit in Pittsburgh right away. It right? took a few years. Yeah. It took a couple years and the patience of the Steelers organization to stay with him because people lambasted me for the first couple of years. You like Bud Dupree's nothing. He's not doing anything. They're going to have to draft another guy. And then they did have to draft another guy. But <laughs> Dupree kept working. Coaches kept on him. And all of a sudden, it's like he has a breakout year in like his third year, right? He starts it at the end of his second year and his third year, like Bud Dupree is a player, like not a good role player, not a supporting player. Like Bud Dupree is a guy like Jedrick Wills will say, man, that guy's tough to play against. That did not happen for the first couple of years. Bud Dupree was a zero. I mean, yeah. he did very little. And I loved him, and I thought, ah, maybe I missed. And then year three, year four, here comes Bud Dupree, signs an $82 million deal uh, to go to the Titans. So fascinating career arc for Bud Dupree. I think he does fit in the Titans' mold. Typically, they bring in the Titans are one of those teams, I mean, John Robinson, particularly over the last five years, they bring in a lot of guys that I'm like, meh, but they make them work, right? Those guys fit their system. They like them better for something particular that I don't particularly see, or I'm maybe looking for something more well-rounded and they're looking at a specific piece or role for their defense. Um, you know, the other guy they spent decent money on, Kendall Lamb at right tackle, right? Almost 7 million bucks for a one-year deal. And I'm like, I'm not really a Kendall Lamb guy, but I wouldn't be at all <laughs> surprised if he plays a decent rotational role for them and plays very well because they again are in lockstep between the front office and the coaching staff and they know whatever the each other is looking for and again they get effectiveness out of these guys i could look at this free agent class and go like hey bud dupree's great uh you know josh reynolds i like one of their lower round signings but like ty sombro uh kendall lamb Brian Hill, these are all these are all kind of what I would consider guys like Jags, right? Just another guy. But these guys come in, they play a role, they fit the culture, they have this one skill that the Titans are looking for that they can really sort of not necessarily even unlock, just put them in a position to use. And you know, they're not all gonna hit, but like more of them hit than I would think. And it's because they know what they're looking for in a really fine sort of match. And those are the most successful teams, right? Where the coaching staff and the front office are in lockstep and the, and Titans, I think have, if they haven't achieved the top level of that in the league, they're knocking on the door. They're real close. They went to the AFC championship game after beating the Patriots for a reason. Like they are a well-run organization that more importantly than anything has an identity they know what they want to be, yes. they know what they are, and they stick to it. An organization that has a coherent identity and builds the team to that identity is always going to be more successful. And, Dangerous. And they understand it. Yeah, they, they understand that. They have guys with experience um, with another team that, that always built for an identity, which was the New England Patriots. I think that was the lesson they took away from that organization. They stuck to it in Tennessee. They said, we know what we are, we know what we want to be. They attacked that relentlessly for years, and here they are. They're, they're one of the, the preeminent franchises in the league, in my opinion. 
now the Colts are trying to get back to that. They were for a long time, but I do think that uh, the Colts' leadership structure has them on the right track. There's still there's still some things that need to be addressed, but they're they're very hard. To their credit, they are very hard things to address. It's not every day that your franchise quarterback just ups and retires a couple weeks before the season. It takes a while to fix that problem, and they they did an admirable job, an admirable patch job, I should say. You know, bringing in Philip Rivers and getting what they could out of him, and you know now they're they're bringing in Carson Wentz, who's probably the next phase of the oh shit, we got to find a way to replace Andrew Luck <laughs> phase here. Um, they're trying. They're they're. They're taking swings. I, I don't know if, if the Carson Wentz thing will work out because, my God, he was bad in Philly last year. But if there is one coach that I think might be able to get him back to 2017 form, it will be Frank Reich. So we'll look at the coaching organization structure here because I think that's going to be critical to Carson's potential bounce back. You got Chris Ballard. Uh, going into year five at GM now, one of the best GMs in the league. I think that's universally recognized in terms of how he manages assets, not just draft picks, but also cap space, um, You know how he treats his players, how he builds a culture in that building. He is one of, and I think this is not even arguable, one of the five best general managers in the league. He was handed a problem that was extraordinarily difficult with Andrew Luck retiring again right before the season started but I think he's handled it as well as anybody possibly could and he still built some competitive teams while dealing with that uh, Frank Reich again love him as a coach and I think the best thing to happen to the Colts in a long time was them uh, going with Frank Reich as their backup plan with Josh McDaniels backed out because Frank Reich, I think, is a better coach. He's a better head coach, I should say, at least. I think he's exactly what they needed at the time, even if they didn't even initially know it. And I think McDaniel's backing out of that deal was a blessing in disguise because they got Frank Reich, and I think they're in good hands with him. Uh, Marcus Brady, year one at offensive coordinator, at Nick Sirianni, uh, moved on to the Eagles and got the head job there. And then Matt Eberflus, who was uh, actually a, a – uh, the DC that was hired by McDaniels before McDaniels pulled out. <laughs> but as a testament to Frank Reich's character, he said, look, you've already been offered the job. I'm not going to take it from you. You can still be my DC. He was, he was not Frank Reich's first choice at DC, but he honored the deal that was offered to Eberflus when it was originally going to be McDaniels job. And Eberflus ended up being a pretty good hire at DC his progression as a play caller has been interesting because he's taken a very similar route to Pete Carroll where Pete Carroll for the longest time was a too high guy. They played a lot of quarters. They played a lot of Tampa two going back to his USC days. And he referred to, um, to Tampa two as just inverted cover three. And then he went to Seattle and because of the personnel he had, he became more of a true cover three coach. And that's now what kind of people know him for, but he spent most of his career as a cover two and quarters guy. And Matt Eberflus, when he was the, became the DC in the Colts again, started out, you know, they ran a lot of Tampa too. And then all of a sudden personnel morphed. And last year they became more of a cover three team. And now that's what they play most of the time 
is cover three. So it's it's been kind of an interesting mirror of the Pete Carroll path for Matt Eberflus. And I think they are they are now, I don't want to say officially a cover three team, but they are not the same Tampa two team that they were billed as a couple years ago. And I think people need to realize this defense has changed. Their philosophy has changed. And now they are going to spend most of their time in single high rather than too high. Yeah, and they're going to bring pressure to try and support that because that defensive line is is interesting and fascinating, I think, to watch under Iberflus. And that was such a strange personnel situation to come in and have a, a single coach be offered and, and then the head coach candidate melts away and there's this guy just standing there sort of holding his paper like, they said I could do the job. <laughs> they back into a much better coach, head coach in Frank Reich. I do believe that. I believe Josh McDaniels is a very good football, football coach. I was never sold on him as a head coach in his time in Denver. Didn't really think he was going to be great the second time around as, as some coaches are. Again, blessing in disguise is a great um, – phrase for that the Iberflus thing was just a weird sub note to that and it's worked out really well like Colts defense has been quite good somewhat underrated so really interesting but Chris Ballard uh boy is he a guy of conviction he he has his convictions and he will not move and that's not you know if your convictions are wrong that's a bad thing (laughs) Uh, Ballard's got a good sense to him but he is you know when he sets his mind He's, he's not going to be swayed. Um, and he's been uh, one of the, my favorite things about Ballard and his entire regime really is that as a general manager is the openness, right? Colts have put out videos about scouting, about decisions they made in the draft, all this stuff that teams are like, no, no, it's competitive disadvantage to share that stuff. Ballard's like, we'll do it after the fact. We'll be transparent with that and open with that. I can't thank him enough for that. It makes uh, following the NFL more interesting um, he'll walk through, he'll have his scouts walk through what they were thinking, what their process was. That was stuff that teams would never share. That was black box stuff. Ballard's like, no, it helps fans understand what we're doing. It helps fan, it helps grow the fandom for the NFL, um, which he doesn't have to do. He has no, he has no compunction to do that as a general manager. He chooses to do it because he believes it's the right thing to do. Again, strong convictions and you're not going to tell him not to do it. Like Chris Ballard look right at you and go tough. Right. Yeah. That's not his gig. So fascinating leadership structure. Really interesting. Ballard and Reich, one of the great combinations in the NFL. Um, coordinators, we're going to see. Eberflus, we kind of know. Again, the defense is morphed, but I think we're not going to see massive changes in it this year. Uh, Marcus Brady, you know, new quarterback, new coordinator. Uh, we don't know a lot about Marcus Brady and, and sort of what his identity is going to be. I don't even feel like we really knew that about Nick Sirianni because, you know, it was Philip Rivers. Philip Rivers was, was going to call half that or, or audible into whatever he wanted to. Um, completely different offensive landscape for Brady to walk into. And boy, Wentz, for those of you that are Carson Wentz lovers, like you didn't watch last year's tape because it was, it wasn't bad. It was horrible. Like it was, yeah. it was a guy that like completely lost his way as to how to play quarterback in the NFL. And Reich's got a ton of work to do. But we talked about this um, actually before they went after him as a good landing spot because Frank Reich will coach him hard on the basics, right? And a lot of his basics just escaped. <laughs> there's there's that great gif with Steve Martin where he's like. And that's that's what Carson Wentz's plays looked like last year. You get to a point in the play and you're like, all right, 
It's not there. Throw it away, run, dump it to the back, right? And he would circle around to the back of the field and start over. And you're like, what are you doing? And he'd be retreating yeah. and throwing off his back foot. And it was just like, no, no, it was over. Like, you didn't catch it when it was there. It was a thin window. That's fine. You didn't you didn't have the compunction to throw it. But what are you doing now? And that happened over and over. And it just got worse and worse. It was like a train wreck. Um, so it would be really interesting to see what Frank can get him back to. Because even competency would be a huge step up. I, I would take even just below average. I would take 16 to 20. Because right now he's well, sure. 35th to 40th in the league. Yeah, he was he was <laughs> abjectly making his team's chances worse with, I would say, more than half of his snaps. It wasn't like there were high highs and low lows. There were like, eh, super average and like, oh my God, just stop. Just stop. Just drop where you are and let them touch you. It'll be better than what's going to happen. <laughs> I think there actually was uh, a couple games where statistically, if he just threw the ball in the dirt every single snap, it actually would have been a higher passer rating. Yeah, it was it was a it was a horror show Uh, for Eagles fans. I'm sorry you had to suffer through that. It is a huge task for Frank Reich. And honestly, if he achieves competency, even a middle of the range ranking, you got to think that's one of the best coaching jobs of the year. Oh, easily. Absolutely. And and Carson Wentz is also a potential comeback player of the year candidate because if he plays even remotely like he did in 2017, he will be comeback player of the year. Absolutely. Because honestly, I would take the 2018 version, 2019 version, anything, I'll take anything, but anything, but the 2020 version, because it was so like 2017 was the the high. That was the year he was pushing for MVP and everybody was like, they did the right thing. And then he signed this huge contract and he played, all right for the next two years not great i would say he played in that middle range and then last year it was like i remember i i watched every one of those games and i was like oh no stop 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 and it's rare that a guy gets that much leash uh we didn't see jalen hurts to the very end and it was it was well deserved by the time he got on the field because it it actually should have happened sooner so yeah so we'll, we'll see what happens if anybody can can make it happen it's it's frank reich um, let's get in the draft here. Uh, before I get into who they took in the first round, the Colts had a very difficult problem going into this draft, which was their left tackle, Anthony Costanzo, retired. And the only other guys they had on the roster at the time slated uh, in the depth chart for left tackle were Julian Davenport and Sam Tevy, arguably two of the five worst tackles that got significant starting snaps over the last four or five years in the NFL. Uh, So I was hammering over and over and over again. Left tackle, left tackle, left tackle. It's a great tackle class. There's going to be somebody there at 21. Take one. They were at the 21st pick. Tevin Jenkins was on the board. I think Darisaw was gone at this point, if I remember correctly. I think he got taken a few picks before. But Tevin Jenkins was there. And they took Pay. Full disclosure. I like Quiddy Pay as a player. Quiddy Pay is really good. Exceptional athlete. Uh, phenomenal against the run. Plays his ass off. Very high upside. And they also really needed an edge, too. Like, their their edge depth chart was pretty barren. So there is absolutely justification 
for taking quitty pay. But to me, if your number one organizational mission right now is getting Carson Wentz back on the right track, and you are putting your faith in signing Eric Fisher, who himself was an average to slightly above average tackle at best, except he's coming off an Achilles injury and might not even play for the first several games of the year, let alone play 100%, which might not even happen until 2022. If your best hope for giving Carson Wentz the best possible structure around him to bounce back to what he used to be is Eric Fisher coming off an Achilles. That is a problem to me. And I, I we talk about Chris Ballard being a great GM. He has his convictions. He has convictions about Quiddy Pay. He has convictions about strengthening their already strong defensive line. The depth chart at edge was weak. I get it. But I will agree to disagree with him there because my number one priority was making sure that Carson Wentz has a clean pocket to throw from so he doesn't completely shit himself. And I feel like passing on Tevin Jenkins there for Quiddy Pay for me was a mistake. There was offensive line depth in this class, and it, it, yes, Jenkins' overpay can be debated. When they doubled down in the second, and oh, didn't it's a take, Dio, yeah, and they take Dio, who's not going to play this year because he blew up his Achilles. We've got a theme here. It's all about Achilles <laughs> with the Colts, but uh, no, Dio's a great player, and and I'll say a pretty good value if he was healthy. He would have gone higher than that for sure. But you just took Quiddy Pay, you know, ostensibly a same position, defensive end. They have them listed both at defensive end, like you could say more five tech or wide nine or you could, whatever, right? You took two defensive players, defensive line players, with your first two picks. And there were still tackles that they could have taken in the second. Now, if you take Quiddy Pay in the first, and we agree to disagree, and you take a tackle in the second, okay. Right, you just prioritize one over the other. I, you said there was I less depth with that. Edge. Right, that yeah. that seems more defensible. I remember when they doubled down when they picked Dio. I was like, okay, a, it's a little bit early for a guy that's not going to play this year. Uh, B, it was a strongish position on your team. You're talking about edge not being great. That's true, but their defensive line overall was a pretty strong portion of that team last year, and you just pump two picks into it, and your offensive line has taken a major loss. You have two guys that are mm-mm, not great <laughs> as a potential. You kept saying, what do they think they're going to do? Do they think Sam Tevy's going to play less tackle for them? And you said that all the way through the draft because there were guys. Or Brady Christensen was available, and you know we looked at Walker Little, and we looked at all these. There were guys that you could have taken farther on down. I mean, you could you could have gone for the Cincinnati tackle. Like, there were players throughout that you could have gotten help from and they just didn't right the, the whole time they they seem to be cuz they signed Fisher after the draft the whole time they seem to be banking on we're we're rolling with Eric Fisher yeah. which is fine like if Eric Fisher was healthy absolutely fine sure but he's not he's coming off a blown Achilles a late season blown Achilles which in itself is Already a, a hard injury to come back from, let alone for a 30-year-old offensive tackle. So, I love Chris Ballard. He's a great general manager. I said it before. Top five GM in the league. 
that is a just because I, I like him as a GM doesn't mean I can't vehemently disagree with the, with his philosophy. I do not agree with with what they did in the draft. Objectively speaking, they took good players. But if they really want this Carson Wentz experiment to work, I don't necessarily agree they took the right players. Um, looking at the rest of their draft, Kylan Granson, tight end from SMU in the fourth, Sean Davis from Florida in the fifth. Not necessarily sure if they're going to play him at corner or safety. I'm assuming safety which is probably the best way to get the best out of Davis because if they played him at corner, I don't really think he has the man skills to stick there. Sam Ellinger, uh, quarterback from Texas. Um, I guess he'll compete for the backup role, but I mean, if stuff goes really south with Carson, I, I wonder who, who would be QB2 between Jacob Eason and Sam Ellinger. Because I, I feel know. like now, uh, <laughs> Eason? Yeah. Well, it's yeah. interesting is like when you look at the whole quarterback depth chart and it's like <laughs> number one through three is projects. Like Frank Don't Reich disagree. has three, three projects right now between Carson Wentz, Jacob Eason, and Sam Ellinger, all for different reasons, by the way. Yeah. There's like not one solid, no. you know, journeyman veteran you know, like a Blaine Gabbert where it's like, I can throw him in there in case of emergency and we might be semi-okay. All three of these guys, I have no idea what to expect from them at all. So I guess we'll see. <laughs> I, don't, I don't really know what to, what to make of it. Uh, and then you got um, Mike Strachan. It's either Strachan or Strachan from Charleston. Uh, I did not get to watch him because it's Charleston. And then uh, Will Freeze from Penn State. So they did the only take o- a tackle. The only offensive lineman they took. Yeah, in the seventh <laughs> round. I know. So it's, it's I don't know. not fair to Will Freeze, and quite frankly, it's not fair to their to whoever they're going to play at quarterback. We we liked Eason last year as, as a project, and we actually said one of the best places he could end up is Indianapolis because he doesn't have to play right away. He's got Phillip Rivers in front of him. He's got a great quarterback mentor who's going to coach him hard on his flaws in, in Frank Reich. Like, it's a probably one of the best places and so you go into this draft and you're like okay Easton's had a whole year Rivers is out of the way they bring Wentz in again he doesn't have to start he could be the capable backup and they spend a pick on Sam Ellinger and yes it's a sixth round pick I get it but in terms of just tools not leadership not quarterback not anything else in terms of just tools it's not even close between Easton and Ellinger right? Eason can blow Ellinger's doors off. Problem is, <laughs> he might blow the doors off when it's a five-yard pass, because he's got a cannon <laughs> and he needs to throttle back. I would hope that he's that he's managed to, to trim a good bit of that off his game with a year, uh, again, learning the pro game, under Frank Reich, working with pro receivers. Like, you, you would hope that, but maybe not if they, if they spend that pick on Ellinger. Um, you compared a tight end pick earlier to uh, future Hall of Famer and um, Kyle Granson. The first time I watched him, I don't know if it was you or um, our buddy Craig Stout that works for KC Sports Network, but I, I sent a DM after I watched Kyle Granson. I said, you know who he reminds me of? And he said, it was either you or you or Craig, and I can't remember who it was. No. And I said, Dallas Clark. Oh, that's an interesting one. I said he's got a little Dallas Clark to him, right? He's a little huh. bit undersized. He's 
he's good at finding the seam. He's a little bit faster than you think he is. He's a little bit more of a downfield threat. He's not a, you know, he's not a true seam ripper, but you know, just athlete. You know, yeah. guy that look, Dallas Clark played the position really well. Was Dallas Clark a bruiser, right? Was he the guy that you wanted to try and crush a defensive end? Not typically, right? That wasn't his game, but did he catch a million passes from Peyton Manning because he knew how to get open? And I'm not saying Kylan Granson is Dallas Clark, but that was the player pre-draft that I compared the similarities to. I said he's got a little bit of Dallas Clark in his game. I know that's people are going to jump all over me because Dallas Clark, very accomplished tight end. I said that's who he reminds me of a little bit. And he ends up going to Indianapolis, which is hilarious because uh, completely different regime, completely different situation, but here's a guy similar said, kind of player. Me of Dallas Clark, and Kylan Granson goes to the Colts. Um, Sean Davis, safety all the way for me. Big hitter, uh, solid guy, plays plays coming downhill with his hair on fire. Like, he is a going-forward guy. Didn't like his turn and run. A um, little bit stiff, very athletic. Uh, covers more ground, I think, uh, both forward and kind of at the 90 laterally. But when you make him turn and run, limitations show up so to me that's not a guy you're going to put a corner because he's going to have to turn and run more often ellinger great leader we sort of talked about sam ellinger in the ian book uh stratosphere territory whatever and if it's between ellinger and book i'm taking ellinger 10 times out of 10 love him as a leader tough as anything great runner not a great thrower of the football and to succeed in the modern NFL, you have to be a pretty good thrower of the football. And Ellinger's not great. Can he do it? Yeah, absolutely. Some wide receivers at Texas had some decent numbers, but he is not a sort of what I would consider a pass first quarterback. So it'd be really interesting to see what Reich and the Colts saw in Ellinger or why they took a, a roll of the dice. Again, a six round, late six round pick as a lottery ticket. Um, uh, wide receiver I didn't watch, and Will Freeze from Penn State is a practice squad maybe candidate, even on a weak depth chart. So it's it's strange. They got Quiddy Pay, great player. They got Deo, who's probably going to be a great player. But there's this thing about players that don't play in their first year when they're drafted. Very few of them come back in their second year and ascend to the level that everybody prescribed to them pre-injury. The first year of learning, of field time, of understanding the speed of the NFL, of just going through meetings, being a professional, the longer schedule, all that, it it seems to matter because there. this was a stat that came out last year that guys that are injured and don't play in their rookie season, either because they got injured in college or they get injured very early in their rookie season, very rarely ascend to the value that people prescribe. I mean, if you're saying Deo is a second-round pick, the chances he comes back and plays like a second-round pick after missing an entire year, which he's going to do because he blew his Achilles right before the Senior Bowl, um, is not great. So kind of a just historically a risky pick in the second to, to spend it on a guy well, like look, that. Look at Clowney. It's not quite an extreme example, but he had the hernia. So coming into his rookie year in 2014, he didn't really get to do much. Um, missed a bunch of off-season time recovering from surgery. Um, and then literally week one, um, you know, tore his his meniscus and was trying to play through it, and then they shut him down. So he got very little playing time as a rookie. I think he got zero sacks as a rookie because of it because he just didn't get a whole lot of snaps. And even the time he was playing, he was hurt. And Clowney, despite being a really good player, 
never really became what he was advertised as. Mm-hmm. And I think the first couple years of his career, well, honestly, it's, it's been an issue his whole career, but especially early on, the, the, the knee, the hernia, uh, the shoulder, not getting any practice time, not getting as many game reps matters for young players that are still trying to figure it out. And I think you're you're absolutely right. And this is not saying that Dio is inevitably going to fail. Mm-hmm. It's just saying statistically, A, it's hard to come back from an Achilles. And B, it's really hard to hit the ground running your second year in the league when you you have no you have no reps. It's it's just it's an entire year away basically from your profession. And I, like using me as an example, I, I didn't take it completely off cause I was still doing podcasts and I was still working on the spread offense video and stuff like that. But I wasn't putting out videos every single week, um, on film room in the months of May and June. Cause I was just a, a taking some time to recharge after draft season and B, I just was working on some shit like the spread offense video that took me forever to do. And I almost had to like relearn how to edit <laughs> when I, when I sat down to try to edit that spread offense video, cause I just hadn't done it in a while. Now imagine taking over an entire calendar year off from doing D-line drills and, you know, getting live padded reps, full contact. Like, it's it sounds uh, hyperbolic to say he's going to have to relearn to play football his second year in the league. And it's that is statistically, and you made a great point, why it's a it's a lower success rate for these guys. It just is. It's unfortunate, yeah, but it is. We talk about this all the time, right? Oh, they got a value, right? He would have been a second round player, and they only had to spend, uh, you know, not in this case, but you know, a theoretical player. Oh, he would have been a second round player for sure, and they they got him for a low third or whatever because he was injured, right? And there's this this thought of value. Well, the 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 chances those tickets hit are less than your average ticket in the draft which is only 30 or 40 percent so he's got a lot to overcome and basically all those rookie speed bumps you don't get out of the way in year one you're getting them out of the way in year two you're taking all those sort of lumps in year two and you're behind a year and the chance that you ascend um is is just lower so a strange kind of double down uh, take a riskier pick with your second pick which was still pretty high right 22nd overall pick in round two um they, you know, don't have a pick in the third. They come back, get a decent player, I think, in Kyle and Granson. Um, Sean Davis, maybe a little bit underrated, right about where I thought he would have gone from middle fifth anywhere down. I was fine with him. Ellinger was a bit of a, huh? What are they going to do with that, right? Again, some, some, still some talented players on the board. Um, just a strangest draft, given their needs. Again, they took talented players, right? If Dial comes back, like he's absolutely worth a mid-second round pick. Quiddy Pay, one of the craziest athletes at any position in this draft. Um, Granson, like I said, I think can be a contributor uh, at a place where, well, yeah, they got Mo Ali Cox, but he's not the same player. Granson is definitely complimentary to him. Uh, so I, I think, again, they all sort of fit in with the organization, but it's a little bit odd and they didn't go after, you know, their biggest need. If they weren't going to draft a quarterback because they went out and got Carson Wentz, then you really do have to patch the tackle problem. And they just kind of flat out didn't. Yeah. Um, 
which is probably a a good segue into UDFA and free agency. I'll kind of rip through these um, back to back and and we'll look at them as a whole together. So UDFA is you got Tyler Vaughn's um, wide receiver from USC. Fun fact, third all time leading receiver in USC history for a team that's produced a lot of NFL receivers. Uh, Tariq Black from Michigan slash Texas. He was a, a, a mid-career transfer. Uh, Deion Jackson from Duke. Isaiah Kafusi from BYU, linebacker there. And then Anthony Butler, linebacker from Liberty. And then in uh, veteran free agency, you know, you're bringing in guys like uh, Isaac Rochelle from the Chargers, Antoine Woods from Dallas on a one-year deal. Uh, the other Sean Davis, <laughs> spelled S-E-A-N. From Pittsburgh, also on a one-year deal. Uh, it, it, it was weird to me that for a team with so much cap space, they didn't really spend it. The only guy that that's making over what is it over three million on their entire free agency list is Eric Fisher on a one-year deal. Like they have a shit ton of cap space, and they just didn't use it to complement their draft that I felt really needed to be complimented. So I, I guess what I'm trying to say overall is when you look at the draft, philosophically, I have a disagreement. UDFA, the only one I really care about is Tyler Vaughn's, who's a good player. But again, you're talking about an undrafted uh, receiver that runs 4-6. It's not like the most exciting thing in the world. And then free agency... Their biggest win, other than Fisher, is, I guess, re-signing Xavier Rhodes. I don't know. And Marlon Mack, I guess, coming back on a, on a one-year deal for $2 million. They brought back T.Y. for $8 million, I guess, is the other guy. But I, I, I don't understand the synergy between the draft, between the free agency, you know, the trade for Carson. I just want to understand it, I, and I don't. And that's, that's my biggest struggle here is mission number one for the organization should be make the Carson Wentz thing work. And I just don't think they're doing it. I don't, I don't get it. I don't know. Yeah. They got a strong offensive line outside of tackle. They had it with tackle. Stans retires. That puts them in a tough spot again. It's kind of the mini Andrew Luck scenario, right? A guy that is playing very well, uh, Costanzo was not Andrew Luck, but he was very good and at a key position. Not as key as quarterback, but close. Uh, and he he disappears out of your plans and didn't feel like they necessarily pivoted to that. I don't want to over-index on that. I'm with you that the plan feels a little bit like they're loading for next year, <laughs> for 2022. They're going to see if Carson works. If he doesn't, they want to have options. They're going to see, you know, they've got a bunch of young skill players that we like. We're going to talk about some of them. Uh, the Marlon Mack thing feels like a victory, but then when you look at their depth chart and they were four deep at running back last year, it was like, and you know, you drafted one high, you had a great sort of third down back who we both like. And then their fourth guy, cause Mack was a guy that got hurt, but he was sort of ostensibly second or third on that depth chart. Their fourth guy comes in and contributes. They're legitimately four deep at running back. So re-signing Marlon Mack, great, but they didn't really need to like, and they didn't overpay. It's 2 million bucks, but you're looking for those sort of wins or like, how is this going to be functionally better than it was last year? 
And I'm with you. I don't see a ton of things that make me feel like, oh, yeah, they patched this hole. They did that. They, you know, out of UDFA, out of straight up free agency, the draft is a little bit of a, a cipher. Maybe, again, we'll know two or three years from now whether or not these were good choices. But just, again, first blush, which is the way we're all uh, addressing it right now because none of these guys have played it down in the NFL. Uh, they got drafted or are undrafted free agents. We're looking at it and we're saying, not exactly sure how this all fits. If you have some, you know, Chris Ballard codex that you can look through and say, this is the plan. That's, that's great. We'd love it if you could share it. But um, overall, just assessing it, it does not feel entirely cohesive. We'll see how it works just like with anything else. But um, I would not be surprised if the Colts regress a little bit um, and not just because of Carson Wentz, because, if you don't protect Carson Wentz, I don't care if you didn't protect him in Philly. If you don't protect Carson Wentz, you're not setting him up for success. And all the guys that we really love on that offense aren't going to get the chances they need because the quarterback's not going to be a break. Well, the one good thing I'll say for them is they have the most cap space in the league next year mm, because they didn't spend that. anything this year. They got yeah. $83 million next offseason. They had, I think it was like 40, low 40s going into this one and they only spent uh, probably about 20 to 25 of that. So again, you know, they, they've still got, I'm looking at it right now. They got 14 million left that that's, that's not getting used. And so let's, let's be honest, right? If somebody is, you know, a camp holdout at tackle or they want to trade or, something happens somebody comes available they're gonna be one of the teams that can go get them most teams are right tied up against the cap they're not gonna have the ability to throw a you know one year 10 million dollar deal at a guy they think could play left tackle now do i think a left tackle shakes loose in training camp not typically but we've seen we've seen weirder things happen we've seen josh sit and get cut late right we've seen uh you know late releases and the colts could pounce in that really could change the outlook for them if they get another offensive tackle that can play I mean, a lot they, of downs they, for them. They could have gone after Leno. Yeah, easily. they absolutely could have done a lot of things. And that's the weird thing is they could have done, they could have gone after Leno, which was a surprise cut. They could have been harder. I'm sure they were in, well, I'm not sure. They could have been in the Orlando Brown sweepstakes, right? With, with Kansas City. Ballard used to work there. He's familiar with those guys, I'm sure maybe they didn't believe maybe they didn't want to give them the big second contract maybe 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 we don't know but they had a ton of money and they have a hole and you know they didn't do it so it'll be interesting to see maybe they get a camp cut guy they can come in and eat some downs for him but it really does feel like they're just kind of biding time for 2022 and they would never say that no team's ever going to come out and say that but they have a lot of offensive talent it just doesn't feel like it's really going to click if the edges aren't working because man defenses are really good at attacking the edges I, I guess we'll see. Uh, we'll, we'll find see. out. I, I, it's all. It's all I could really say. about <laughs> We'll it see. That's your without... twenty twenty one Colts motto, folks. <laughs> we'll see. Uh, let's move on to um, best AFC South players that we would take in fantasy this year, specifically for our sponsor, All Summer Long ooh, Underdog ooh. Fantasy. Uh, they've been really great for us. Underdog, if you don't know, they are the biggest and best best ball platform out there. Best ball, you don't really have to worry about, you know, anguishing over your starts and sits. You don't have to worry about getting screwed over by injuries. 
whoever on your roster gets the most points, that's who you get credit for. So you really prioritize being good at drafting, good offseason prep. That's why these series are so good for best ball players because we're going over every single player and every single roster. Um, and, you know, what we think about, uh, you know, certain fits and scheme changes and all that kind of stuff. This kind of stuff that we're doing right now is going to prepare you to be a good drafter in best ball. And if you want to be successful in best ball, you have to be a good drafter. So if you want to check out Underdog, you can go to underdogfantasy.com, use promo code BRETT. That'll get you $25 free to use on the platform, which you can use as an entry into their $3.5 million uh, season-long best ball contest they got going right now. Again, uh, just deposit uh, at the link in the description below. Use promo code BRETT. You basically get to enter for free. And you also have best ball contests you can enter all season long. They have a whole bunch of games you can play on there. It's a phenomenal platform. And uh, again, thank you to Underdog for sponsoring us. Now, EJ, let's talk about specific AFC South players that we like in fantasy this year. Some that are big names, some that are probably just slightly undervalued. I'll give my three and then you can give your three. Number one's going to be Ryan Tannehill. I think he's generally considered to be a top 10 fantasy quarterback, but there has been some hesitation because Arthur Smith is no longer there. We're not entirely sure what the offense is going to look like. But from what I've heard about how that organization operated, a lot of the offense philosophically and a lot of the game planning actually came from Tannehill himself. He was basically the co-OC with Arthur Smith. They would sit down and figure out every single week what they wanted to install for that week, what they wanted to change from their existing playbook to work against certain defensive weaknesses that um, that you know coaches who are putting together scouting reports and stuff like that. You know, Tannehill was like a co-OC for them. Does Russell and Wilson know this? I hey, I'm just saying some organizations are better run than others, and we all know that it's a fact. Um, and so I think more of the Titans offensive success comes from Tannehill than I think people give him credit for. And so I think you've seen a little bit of suppression of his value from people that are scared about Arthur Smith no longer being there. I am not scared about Arthur Smith no longer being there. The only thing that I think can crush Tannehill's value is if Todd Downing does the opposite of Arthur Smith and doesn't work with Tannehill and doesn't implement a lot of play action. Again, I'm not saying that will happen. I'm just saying it could, but I have more reason to believe that Tannehill would continue to be a strong presence in the game planning process like he was with Arthur Smith, uh, and I have less reason to believe that the opposite will happen. It's a possibility because we've seen it happen before, Sure, but I, le I lean more to, towards the Tannehill being good side of that coin, so he's one of my guys. Uh, Jonathan Taylor from the Colts. Um, he's a little bit of a chalky pick, but the reason why I think he's undervalued is he's going to get a lot more receiving work this year. He has dedicated the last two off seasons to becoming a better receiving back and not just, I'm going to catch a screen and use my four, three speed to outrun people. I'm talking actually catching routes down the field. We've seen a lot of footage, a lot of practice footage of him working as a receiver, um, I have confidence that he's going to be one of these guys that comes into the league with shaky hands and leaves the league with very good hands. Will Fuller's another one. It's amazing what happens when you get LASIK, Will. I'll just say that. 
Um, but Jonathan Taylor, he's really worked hard at becoming a better receiving back, and I think he's succeeding in that area. So I think his upside is enormous. And then uh, Trevor Lawrence, who right now is going as QB 14 or QB 15 when you look at the underdog rankings in terms of their ADP on the platform. I think he's going to outperform that. And it's primarily because as we are becoming more aware of Urban Meyer's impact on this offense, I think we're going to see a lot more quarterback runs than people think. And quarterbacks who get carries are fantasy monsters, typically, because they are basically getting five to six extra points per week just in rushing, let alone if they're getting rushing touchdowns, which are worth more than passing touchdowns. So I think Trevor Lawrence is going to be a massively undervalued quarterback. Every single year, we'll see some young quarterback with mobility vastly outperform draft position. I think Trevor Lawrence um, is is one of those this year that that can walk in and from day one be a top 12 fantasy quarterback. I was going to say that about Tannehill is that one of the underrated things is not only is he a very good athlete and capable of rushing the ball, but he's tough as nails and he'll get the occasional touchdown where he just blasts into the end zone. Um, Arthur Smith was talking about it in an interview this week and they said, well, you know, where was the point where you feel like Tannehill established himself as the leader of the offense and, and the rest of the team really bought in in Tennessee and he cited two rushes, one of them being a, the one where he helicoptered into the end zone, uh, but then another one on, uh, I think it was third and short, third and two on the end zone, and he, he really tough run, just straight up takes on a linebacker, blows into him, scores, and you know all the all the offensive linemen go nuts. They love that. So Tannehill definitely a bit of an underrated value there, along with his great passing stats. But those are the sneaky things that put quarterbacks over the top. Um, I'm going to go with LaVisca Chenault out of Jacksonville, and, and people who followed draft coverage last year might be like, you didn't like him. I'm like, no, nah, I did not not like him. I said you had to use him the right way, which is a little bit of your Caleb on Chason argument on the other side of the ball, right? Yeah. Is that this is a guy that is a tremendous athlete with the ball in his hands. And then, again, another wide receiver that plays like a really talented running back. He is electric, can break tackles, can make people miss. He's not a great down-the-field receiver. That's not his thing. And he had a pretty decent rookie year. Nothing that was going to, you know, light anybody on fire. He is one of those guys that seems primed to take a second-year leap. Again, all the practice footage we've seen, all the reports we've had out of Jacksonville is that LaVisca Chenault looks every bit as good as he was at the end of last year and better. Um, and face it, Trevor knows how to take take advantage of athletic targets. Um, I think he's the guy set to explode in Jacksonville for a much larger share of the offense. Again, Urban Meyer understands athletic hybrid wide receivers. You can call them H-backs. You can, you know, he has a history of working with them successfully. Here comes LaVisca Chenault, as athletic as anybody he worked with at Ohio State. And that's saying something because Ohio State has a ton of athletes. Yeah. LaVisca Chenault is right there. And it's just this perfect matrix of he had a pretty good first year. He's figured out. He's taken all those rookie lumps. He's got a quarterback that can get it to him more reliably and a head coach that understands how to put him in positions for that. Like that to me screams a guy that's not being drafted as highly as his production is going to warrant. Um, AJ Brown in Tennessee, that's my chalky, 
chalkiest pick. Um, <laughs> great receiver, but he doesn't have to establish a relationship with Tannehill. He has a great relationship with Ryan Tannehill, and people are going to say, oh, well, Julio Jones coming in is, is going to you know shave off some of those targets. Yeah, it is, but Julio Jones also has to establish that chemistry. Julio Jones is a very good player in his own right, not known as a touchdown threat. I think those are still going to stay more so with AJ. Which is, it's weird, by the way, right? Oh, hugely he, weird. Because he's somebody a that dominant gifted. player. Yeah, dominant <laughs> yeah. player. Dominated at Alabama. The fact that he went that huge streak in Atlanta without a touchdown was was nuts. Just wild. So, AJ Brown, going to get his yards. Probably going to keep his touchdown ratio pretty close. Already has the connection with Tannehill. Comes in, hits the ground running. Boom. He's good to go. Uh, Michael Pittman Jr., from Indianapolis. Now, we loved him in the draft. Receiver at USC, Tyler Vaughn's teammate. They're reunited now in Indianapolis. Uh, really thought Pittman Jr. We saw him dominate at the Senior Bowl, right? We were at the Senior Bowl together, and he just beat the snot out of defensive backs all week. He won early. He won late. He won down the field. He won on crossers. He won on physical routes. He won on speed routes. He just won, won, won. We, we loved him come in. Played with a little bit of an injury, had a sort of a freak injury in the first half of the season. Thing that really caught my eye about Pittman after his return. So from week nine on in last year, not including the Tennessee rematch because the Vrabel boys gave him a solid beating the second time around. They basically said, <laughs> you're not going to beat us. So if you just remove the Tennessee game, but go from week nine on, Second half of the season last year, he had 39 targets and he caught 28 of them. That's almost a 72% catch rate. Carson Wentz is going to have to find somebody. T.Y., maybe. Um, I think it's Pittman. I think Pittman's going to be his primary target there. I think the Colts are going to end up throwing a little bit more, which would pull a couple of yards out of Taylor. But Taylor's going to have a great year as it is, and he is the primary back. So that that is a great, safe, chalky pick there. But he's really going to have to pick one of the wide receivers. And if anybody's lined up in that spot, it's Pittman. He had a strong second half of his rookie year. Hopefully he's going to stay healthy. If he does, he's primed to get a lot of targets for the Colts. And if Carson Wentz can bounce back at all, I think Pittman's a really strong candidate. If we've got any rookie sleeper values, we talked about it plenty. It's Travis HN. I think he's got he's got home run ability no matter what. I don't care where you put him. You put him in the backfield, you put him in the slot. If you're going to use him in both of those places, that just multiplies his value to me. It might be less touches overall than if he was the straight number one back, but he has the potential to take it. And because people are unsure about the position, where he's going to play, how they're going to utilize him, people are not jumping on what is a very high round pick at what would ostensibly be running back. Normally you get a guy picked in the first round at running back, like the team's going to play him, the team's going to ride him, so everybody's going to jump on him in fantasy. Not the case with HM because they have a very talented offense, a lot of other weapons, they have an established running back, and now there's this, are they going to make him wide receiver? Is he going to be a flex? I still think either way, he's going to get touches, he's going to get yards, and he can take any one of those for a touchdown, which is obviously going to boost you. And you don't have to pick the right week, right? That's not that you're not locked into the classic fantasy. Well, he only got four touchdowns and I played him the other four weeks. Not a problem. If you draft him, you're going to get all his points. So Travis HN's my sort of rookie sleeper value, even though there's some positional instability or unsureness there. You know what's interesting 
is James Robinson ADP. His average draft position is th- about 30 spots lower than Travis Etienne. Even though I wouldn't mm. be surprised if Robinson gets more carries. I, I would weird. I think Robin I think it it worries people both ways, right? Robinson's going to cut into HN's value and HN's going to cut into Robinson value even though Robinson is is the preeminent. Yeah, they're they're both seen there. as like like again, Etienne's value is at like for a first round running back, University of First Round running back be like the 25th ranked running back. Because I think it, and then you have uh, Robinson being the like 29th or something like that, maybe yeah. like early 30s. Like you for a team that's going to run the ball that much, you you never see running backs ranked that low. And I think it's because, no. to your point, people have no fucking idea how they're going to be used. Yeah, it's just a ton <laughs> of uncertainty. Both, I think, are going to be productive players. Um, I Here's one for you. I think Robinson's probably a better straight fantasy pick, and HN's more valuable in best ball. Because... Because of the variability. Four, and 4-3 four, speed, don't lie. And if he gets the corner one time, that's all you need. Yeah, I mean, if you have any questions about his ability, go back and watch his 2019 tape. Yeah. Uh, DC's figured him out a little bit in 2020 and limited some of those things. They understood. They went back and said, what happened in 2019 and how did he get all those touchdowns? Go back and watch the 2019 tape. He didn't lose that ability. We're not talking about an injury situation. Like, in 2019, he was fire yeah. like Abs- absolute destroyer of worlds yeah just like he beat that guy. he beat all those guys <laughs> again <laughs> and and that's why it was so weird that he came back for his senior season and chris were like man he could have yeah. gone as a junior and been no i had him on my list in 2019 i was he was i always have i should make that list we should make that list every year the bummed list right uh J- jackson player defensive line Tulsa. <laughs> uh, okay. Uh, I'll go with uh, the tight end out of uh, OSU. Like, oh, uh, Ruckert. Ruckert. Yeah, he's good. I was like, I was like, come on, man. <laughs> come Actually, on, man. And I'll do you was, one better. He was one of mine. So there's always like five guys. And HM was on that list in 19. Like, I was like, oh, you went back? What are you kidding me? You know, you know who else was on that OSU team that went back, though? Olave. Oh, Olave was Olave is the top of my list. Like, yeah, number one with the bullet is Olave. But Rucker, again, in a really weak tight end class, I was like, "Come on, man, read the room." <laughs> also, that. your quarterback next year is not going to be as good as Justin Fields. Like, take the win. That. It was like <laughs> literally, you could be in contention for TE two, right? Because it would have been him and Fryermuth. Like that. That yeah. I think is a really fair comparison for TE two. Like Kyle Pitts is going to be Kyle Pitts, but like Rucker, I was like Rucker, come on, man. There's there's nobody there. There's Fryermuth and nobody else. You're going to be at worst TE three, right? Which just gives you value because of scarcity. Like come out and you know I I'm never going to get on a guy for his decision because everyone is personal, family decision to finish school, injury work, whatever it is. Like he he made his own decision. Good on him. I'm not getting on him about his decision, but I always have that disappointed list right of. Like I had that guy. Um, uh, this year, there's a safety, Reed Blankenship from MTSU, Middle Tennessee State, and I had him on my list. <laughs> I got I nothing. Like, oh no! Wait till you see him. 
Like he was, and he decided to go back. And it was a fifth, or it might even be one of the guys who was a sixth year because of COVID, where they gave everybody a free year. Uh, and he did have an injury year, so it's at least his fifth year. But three year captain, starter, good size. Uh, I was like, oh man, come on, Reed, come on out. Like loved his tape, had him on my list, and then it was like he was a late because uh, they gave him a extended decision to go back to college. He ended up going back for another season. So I hope he has a great season and he's in the top of the safety rankings this next year. Uh, you know, that's the best case. And and HN is the best case, right? Goes back, has another phenomenal year. Team does really well and goes in the first round. Like a lot of times you see guys go back, they get hurt. Their team doesn't do so well. Like you said, the quarterback moves on. They, they, they slip a little bit and it's like, man, you would have been a first round pick and now you're a, a third or fourth round pick, which is a significant amount of money over the life of the contract for a young player. Look at Matt Barkley, you know, would have been a first round pick. Do I have to again? Don't make I'm just me saying would it would have been a first round pick. Yeah. Anthony Barr destroyed his shoulder as a senior. Never had the same arm. Keep in mind, like I went to high school with Matt Barkley. We were in the same class. Um, I watched him live my whole life and like his injuries to his shoulder really added up. And I think it cost him a lot of money. Yeah. It's unfortunate. So it's great to see guys like HN who who sort of gamble, come back, um, have a great year, get drafted high again. Um, but there's always we should do that disappointed list next year. Like the guys we had we watched yeah. watch their tape and we were like, Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they're like, We're going back. We're like, Oh okay. <laughs> well, I'll put you on next year's list. Okay. Uh, what do you say we get out of here, EJ? We have been going for over three hours now, I think, at this point. So we are part of the course for for bootleg these days, I guess. But Hope you guys enjoyed this. Um, what's the next division we're doing, by the way? Are we doing the north? Uh, we're going up north because we went west and then south, and then we're going up north, and we started with NFC teams. So, uh, so I guess it's time to talk about Justin Fields for two and a half hours. How about yeah, that? yeah, no, big, big <laughs> episode. NFC North will be next week. Uh, in the meantime, if you're enjoying the divisional previews, head on over to the Bootleg Store and pick up a T-shirt in your team's colors because one of the things that not every person knows is that we have uh bootleg t-shirts in every color of the nfl rainbow um all 32 teams represented with their own color schemes on the bootleg football logo so if you're thinking hey i want to support my team drop on over the bootleg store pick one up in the off season we've got hoodies uh of course we have pint glasses why would we not have pint glasses and coffee mugs for the other end of the spectrum when you need to get up and get going so uh drop by the bootleg store bootlegfootballpodcast.com uh pick up a t-shirt in the meantime and uh, we will be back with uh one of the divisions near and dear to our particular hearts the <laughs> NFC North, uh and a lot of good storylines uh some some unsettled storylines but uh some really interesting progress in that division not just the bears we'll be talking about the lions we talked about them in our best draft uh podcast a little bit earlier on so tons of fun stuff but yeah we'll be back next week with another marathon podcast uh love bringing these to you quick shout out to all our international fans who are staying with us through all this i see you guys and gals on twitter i see you coming in from germany and brazil and japan and thailand and everybody else i you know can't thank you all enough for following along this is uh this is the doldrums of the nfl and we're still pulling incredibly strong viewership and listenership numbers on these podcasts and that's all a credit to you all so uh just wanted to give you a shout out haven't really said anything directly since the draft but can't thank you all enough 
And that'll do it for this week's episode of the Bootleg Football Podcast. Thank you again, everybody, for watching. We will be back in, uh, I guess, six or seven short days reminiscing about the awesomeness that was the Chicago Bears draft and hoping to God that Aaron Rodgers leaves that division forever. So we'll see you guys soon. Uh, Until then, cheers. Take care.